everybody and welcome to the Smorgasbord. I'm Tom Shapira and with me as always... Hello, I'm Sean Edry, the star-spangled man with a plan. <laughs> This is a comic book podcast brought to you by the fine folks at Seekport, the best online and on-your-shelf source for comic books, news, reviews, critique, buy their books, read their articles, watch their movies. And remember, Seekport is on Patreon, support smart criticism in comics. Yeah. So this is a post-San uh, Diego Comic-Con podcast and... There's been a lot of news, but most of them have been talked about to death. Yeah, and, it's and, a timing issue. Yeah, We just yeah. happened to film between San Diego Comic-Con and the Eisners. But I figure we can sort of touch on specific points very briefly. Okay. Just to give our opinion. So, um, really, I guess with regards to San Diego Comic-Con, the only thing I think that's worth even weighing on at this point are all those trailers that came out, right? Because... Uh, well, that and the Eisners, the actual, well, the actual yeah. comic book content of the once aptly named Comic-Con. Yeah, but I think like for SDCC specifically, so for example, uh, there was a trailer of Doctor Strange I thought was fine. Yeah, it's, you it's, know, it's a Marvel trailer. Yeah, it reinforced the idea that, you know, Scott Derrickson is doing different things in terms of visual representation, right? All these Inception-like things with the city melting. It does look that, at least visually, this might be a little different, mm. which, which is fine, you know. As, same- long, as long as you don't do an MC Escher tribute, I'm happy because at this point, <laughs> I'll, I am tired. I, whenever whenever somebody wants to do, like, trippy visuals and, you know, movie, they're always doing the damn stare thing. Yeah. And I'm like, stop, enough. Like, it, it got to the point where I've seen that M.C. Escher stare thing in Drawn Together. Like, when you reach that point of ubiquity, just let it go. Uh, the Defenders trailer didn't really reveal anything except for the fact that it's happening. But, you know, I did like this little effect of using the four logos to create the word Defenders. That was clever. But there is one in particular that I want to pick your brain about, Tom. Mm-hmm. The Justice League trailer. Huh. I, hmm. I have to be completely honest with you and say that I thought it was remarkable for having the tiniest touch of humor. Somebody explained to Zack Snyder what is this thing we humans called jokes. Yeah, but I guess it also goes to show like how low people's standards have gotten to this point with DC movies. That like the tiniest bit of mirth in that scene with uh, Ben Affleck and Ezra Miller. Right? Oh, oh I'm, about, so, like, I'm sorry. I thought you meant about that scene with Iron Man and Spider-Man. <laughs> oh, 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 sorry. oh, that was a completely different movie. I mean, I wasn't going to go there because... It's, you know. it's obvious. Everybody said it. Yeah. And I mean, it's, what's amazing to me is that for a long, long time, uh, the DC fans in the, I don't know, DC Marvel Cinema War or whatever, one of their biggest defense of DC was that they were a notorial driven studio that. Oh, it, we're gonna, we're gonna get to like discussing the DC Marvel Cinematic War in much greater detail yeah, but later on in the, the show. The obvious thing about the Justice League trailer is that somebody at management said about Zack Snyder and told him, What he can and can't do. This is obviously a studio thing. That moment. And a lot of the trailer, a lot of the jokes are something that Zack Snyder wouldn't do. Because we've right. seen enough Zack Snyder movies and definitely Zack Snyder trailers. Because if nothing else, this guy loves to make trailers. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's fair to say... nothing s- like them. It's fair to say that with a director like Zack Snyder, 
I don't think that it's biased to say that he has a track record for certain things. Yeah. Humor isn't necessarily one of them. So for them to go to SDCC and show this scene where the entire point is to show like the slightest bit of charm with Bruce Wayne, right? Like that whole dialogue with, with uh, Barry Allen was, you know, oh, I need friends and how cool is this? And again, like it, it really does give the sense of, you know, people who want to be invested in the cinematic Justice League have been so beaten down by Man of Steel and Batman v Superman and just like the lack of joy mm. that even this tiny thing, people have been talking about it ever since SDCC, right? They've been going on and on about like, oh, it was amazing and it's a whole new direction. And it's like, guys, it was one scene. Also, Aquaman. Let's talk about Aquaman. What, 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 what is there to say? Every generation tried to reinvent Aquaman as a badass, and every generation fails. This one might succeed, though. No, no. I mean, look, Jason Momoa isn't known for being an actor of Shakespearean depth, but in practically everything I've ever seen him in, he tends to define the term badass. Like I don't know if you've seen him. Uh, yeah, the, but the, last the problem with Aquaman is that the character has been in the public sphere or whatever a joke for such a long time that every attempt at badassing him or whatever is like overreach course correcting. It reads reactionary, and that's one of the big problems with the Jeff Jones run, which a lot of people like. Oh, to yes. be fair, is that oh, it yes. very much reads like the writer telling the readers, "No, no, no, Aquaman is cool now. It's okay. You can." make fun of him and i'm sitting there thinking i really like the brave and the bold aquaman he owned, yeah he was a fun character he owned up to the jokiness without making the joke making him a joke yeah i the impression that i got from the trailer wasn't that they may be going too far because there is something to be said for the notion of aquaman as like the barbarian king archetype it's not necessarily something that worked when momoa was playing conan right Mm-hmm. But it might work in this context. I don't know, the, like, because you don't see that much of him. But he drinks. He it likes. Could work. He it likes could the work. booze. Apparently, it could, it could go either way. Mm. Uh, we'll, we'll have to see what they do with him. I do think that they might, like, at least cinematically. I don't know if Snyder would treat Aquaman with the same kind of defensiveness that people, specifically in the comic industry, tend to do. Because you remember. Uh, the Brave and the Bold Aquaman was great, but the Aquaman before him in Justice League Unlimited was different. Oh, right? yeah, yeah. It was the Peter David version. But it wasn't over the top. So it might just well, be that I, that I, kind I, of... I'd say that Aquaman was over the top, but he wasn't a main character. He was a supporting player. So therefore, when he appeared, it was like a big deal. But if, you, that... had, if you had to... If he was like one of the main characters in the Justice League cartoon, I'd think he'd get annoying pretty fast because you can't have somebody just gruffing his way all the time Mm. we'll see we'll see what they go i mean the fact that dc oh you know we'll talk about dc studio in a a, momentarily um so that was really it like in terms of Uh i guess also there's the wonder woman trailer but i don't know if there was anything there that absolutely stood out beyond i I really liked it but at this point i'm suspicious of trailers so yeah We'll, we'll see what, what comes of all it, that. If if the movie is up to the standards of the trailer, it would be good. Which well, the, the DC Universe needs. Well, apparently, uh, like people who analyze the trailer claim that uh, 
Chris Pine's character is more dominant in it than Gal Gadot's, which I find problematic. But on the other hand, I don't, you know, trailers are always misleading by nature. You're not necessarily going to get a clear and accurate picture of what the movie actually is well, about. Well, he has more lines, but she's physically there more. Oh, yeah. Know? Oh, yeah. Hmm. We'll see. We'll see where it goes. Uh, Eisner's? Eisner's, yes. Uh, the Eisner's came out, and uh, I haven't read, uh, unfortunately, a lot of the winning uh, series, but it seems like a really solid choice. You know, Adrian Tomei winning Best Short Story for Killing and Dying. It's Adrian Tomei, you know, yeah. bound to be good. Best humor publication goes for Harker Vagrant because it's Kate Beaton. So again, there's nothing, there's nothing there for me to point and say, well, why you do that for? Yeah, Image won big with seven awards. Also, Drawn and Quarter, I think, also won seven awards, which is huge because they're a pretty small publisher. Yeah, but they do tend to sweep award categories when they're nominated. Mm. I guess because we're in Israel, we should do a shout-out for Asaf Hanukkah, local boy, though, yes. for our winning for The Realist. Though, at this point, I'd say both the Hanukkah brothers are big enough. Let's say it's, it's not like, uh, you know, local boy made good. It's a superstar, you know. Well, earned, he earned these dues way, way back. We shouted out homegirl Ayala Zurer for being on Daredevil, even though she's like a big, big-time superstar. So yeah. why not, uh, you know, sure. Anything special about the Eisners? Anything that's well, left to really. you? I mean, the thing mm-hmm. with the Eisners is that they really do tend to come off like the Emmys. No real surprises when you know who the players are. So, for example, Best Webcomic went to Bandette. Of course it went to Bandette. Like, why would it not go well to Well deserved. Yeah. Or Best Publication for Kids went to Over the Garden Wall. Okay. Nimona, best... Nimona got Best Graphic Album Reprint, which... Yeah. All the competition at that point knew they were about to lose. No major surprises. Yeah. Uh, best new series went to Paper Girls. Of course it did. You know, Brian Vaughn has been doing stellar work. Saga is on hiatus. Paper Girls has been filling the void. Why would it not? Like, there's no... The Eisners at this point, I think, are more about affirming what people already know, generally speaking, than being a platform to highlight something that you might not have ever heard of. Yeah. You know, like, Over the Garden Wall was huge at the time that it was airing. Everybody was talking about it. So, of course, a comic book tie-in is going to sweep an award category. Yeah. So, I guess we should mention the Promising Newcomer Award, the Russ Manning Award, which went to Dan Mora, which we both really like, right? For, yeah. For his work on Next and such. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, that's... I don't know. I guess I would be more interested in awards like these if they didn't try to skew so predictably. Like, I've always wanted some kind of award system where show me things that I don't actually know that I might not have heard of as Mm. someone who's interested in the mainstream. Well, here's the thing, because it's... Right, because it's a mainstream award. And I'd say for a lot of comic book readers who only read Marvel and DC, a lot of this stuff would have been, Oh yeah, what's this strange land that you talk of image? Yeah. Drawn in quarterly? But then on the other hand, would you expect DC and Marvel zombies to read Drawn in Quarterly even if it won Eisner's? Like, I don't know if that's even a a cross market thing. Mm. If your main concern is superheroes, you probably wouldn't (laughs) find things in the Eisner's to be like, oh, this sounds like something I would reasonably be interested in. Well, you know, I started with superheroes and I learned to read Drawn in Quarterly. I, I guess if I could, everybody could. You're special, Tom. None of us is special. <laughs> uh, so, anything else? 
Well, one bit of comic news. Most of the news that we have today are like mm. uh, media, you know, film, uh, television, etc. I do have one thing uh, related to comics specifically, which is that the Misfits from IDW's Gem and the Holograms are getting a spinoff. That's interesting. How do we feel about that? Well, who's the artist on that? Well, Sophie Campbell is still AWOL, right? Like, and, no, no, no. And Sophie based Campbell on what... has said she's doing her own thing. I think she's yeah. done with, uh, the artist trade, hasn't with been... trademark material for a while. Yeah, the artist hasn't been announced yet. Uh, the writer is still Kelly Thompson. Mm. Now, Thompson's been doing great, but I do wonder... The Misfits it, sort of work as... Not not in the antagonist in the new gem series, but as a com- comparison point. Yeah, and when they're when not you... exactly. I mean, they're not trying to kill the holograms the way they did in the old <laughs> cartoons. So no. you know, like th- uh, like throwing them down snow covered hills or trying to bury them alive in the jungle or something. I don't know. <laughs> they did some pretty criminal things in the old series. Uh, here, they they do seem to sort of benefit from the back and forth between them. But on the other hand, uh, there's no denying that Thompson has made them compelling characters in their own right. So if this turns out to be some kind of... The gem- Gemiverse? There's not really a lot to go on. Crisis on Infinite Gems? coming that's kind of a lot, Coming right? soon? That, that's kind of a lot. Because, you know, IDW has that revolution thing now that groups together in the same universe. Oh, no. There are, well, yeah, but we talked about this G.I. Joe, Action <laughs> no. Man, and Rob. No. And I wonder, no. I wonder, Sean, you no. know, Synergy versus Optimus Prime, uh, who would win? No, no, no. Well, we don't need d- to do don't, that. Don't you want to see the Misfits jamming with, uh, what's his name, Soundwave? I really don't. I really don't. I have no desire. Because, like, look... Because the the spinoff is still being written by Kelly Thompson, I'm willing to sort of take that step forward and be like, okay, she's been doing solid work so far. I have no reason to think that a spinoff would be less good, you know? I would at the very least give the first arc a try. It does seem strange to me, though, like, if you turn this into another universe, I just, I don't want that, you know? So much of the charm of of Gem so far has been precisely the fact that it's been self-contained. And if you start spreading it around, I really don't know, first of all, if this is the kind of series that could sustain that. Because I think about it. Transformers. You could make the argument that the source material they're using is the sort of thing that would enable a universe or a franchise in itself. Yeah, right? like, like there hundreds were so, of characters at the base oh level alone. Oh my god, Tom. Like, how many damn Transformers are there out there, right? You could literally do half a dozen books just on, like, the cast and all the different continuities and all that, right? Like, that, that, that exists. The same goes for Star Trek. If they wanted to do, like, a Star Trek franchise universe, whatever, you have enough characters and you have a big enough world. I don't know if that's true here. I remember reading a Brian Hibbs column a few months ago where he talked about the strange economy of licensed books. And you've got to wonder, because Gem sells okay for IDW numbers, but, you know, IDW numbers are at the level where Marvel or DC would cancel a book three times over. Yeah. And and these are books that in which IDW has to pay Hasbro, right? They have to pay the licensee. I don't know. So I don't know. That's why? an interesting question, because I don't know if... They would be required to because Hasbro isn't doing anything with the licenses. They may have just yeah, bought but they them. don't give them away. Obviously, no, they no try not, to make not necessarily. Movie. No, no, not necessarily give them away, but they may have purchased them. Yeah, but it, you still have to pay some money. So how do you? 
what's what's the good level for a spin-off for such a book? I'm just very, very curious. Um, I'll be honest, I haven't been tracking Jem's sales. As far as I know, it seems to have established a loyal readership over a sustained period of time. Right? Yeah, They're because like... we know that in for creator-owned books, like image books, Uh, the creators make the money back if there's like a base level of say 8,000 monthly readers before Something the trade's like coming. Yeah. But, uh, you know, Sophie Gamble and Kelly Thompson don't own the gem books. So um, they don't, so they don't make all the money back. And well, now they say that the sales are good enough to make, to make for a spinoff. And it, it's just, I'm, I'm not begrudging them because I want to read it, but I'm just so curious about, How do you make money out of these things? I really am curious. Are the, are the trail sales are jammed that high? They might be. Because there are, there are only like two trades in. The fur trade isn't out yet. Yeah, but I think that it might have caught on. Um, Maybe digital is very good. I don't know. Well, that's the thing. We don't really have access. Like the market in general doesn't really have access to digital sales per se. Like it, it, it never gets incorporated into the diamond sales charts. So yeah. nobody really knows how well any of these are doing. I have to imagine though, like a book like Gem seems to be targeted primarily to digital readers. I think to readers of like a younger generation than those who would want to go to a comic book store every Wednesday. Right. Hmm. It, that's what I like the sense that I get reading it is, you know, I'm, I enjoy it as is, but I do sometimes feel like, okay, you're, you are skewing to readers who would be younger than me. Uh, it's okay. possible. It's, mm -hmm. it's hard to say, but, um, you know, clearly if the sales of the book are healthy enough that IDW is going forward with a spinoff in the first place, the only thing I can say to that is to congratulate Thompson and Campbell on a job well done. Yep. And in more news, Powers and Cancel is canceled. That's the TV show. Uh, it'll land after season two. Yeah. Maybe the comic is also canceled. I don't know. We reviewed the first issue of, what was it? The third volume? You can't like cancel something that isn't in publication. <laughs> Or I guess you can. I don't know. I don't It's know. Just... The, do the issues still come out? What's going on? Tom, Tom, if a Bendis comic is canceled in the woods and nobody reads it, does it fall down? I don't know, S. Tar S. Scarlet. You know, there's a movie, so. But, um, yeah, so the thing with this Powers show is it was airing on PlayStation TV rather than a conventional network channel, which may explain some of the problems. I don't, because I don't know that PlayStation TV is this huge thing that everyone in the world is tuning into, right? Yeah, I pressed X four times and they haven't stopped the cutscene. You know, it's still out, it still goes. Yeah. That um, was a video game humor. That's the, that's the most I know. <laughs> oh, I, we'll get to, we'll get to video games in a bit. Don't the, worry. The less console I owned is actually the first PlayStation. <laughs> that's how out of date I am. Oh, Tom, you're missing out on so much. But, um, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest. And I think we, we, we've said this. Like when the series first started airing, it just wasn't really very good. They I have, only, like, I decent only watched actors. the first episode, so I wouldn't, you know. I know. mean, Sh Charlotte Copley is not a bad actor. Michelle Forbes was in there. There, there were like really decent cast. Uh, Eddie Izzard played the villain of all people. It's like, uh, but something about it didn't click. And I guess if it's getting the axe, that probably resonated with a couple of other readers too. Yeah. Speaking of video games though. Okay. So I've got some video game news. Don't worry, Tom. I got this one. Okay, back in 2006, Marvel teamed up with a video game company called Activision. You might be more familiar with them because 
they do a lot of action games like uh let's see what would be something that you would know from video games just say something it's okay um crash bandicoot i am aware of crash bandicoot okay so they did crash bandicoot they did uh, a couple of spider they've had a, like a long running association with marvel now the ultimate alliance games uh the first one came out in 2006 for playstation and pc second one came out just for playstation and or like you know the consoles and they were pretty decent. They're like these games where you assemble a team of uh, four superheroes and they each have their powers. You develop them in different ways. You fight like Doctor Doom and the Green Goblin. You know, like average action, fun Marvel games, whatever. A couple of weeks ago, Activision decided to re-release these games for modern, modern uh, PCs, including like bringing Ultimate Alliance 2 to the PC for the first time. Now, speaking as someone who only plays games on the PC, I was like, oh, fantastic, fun times. Mm -hmm. I finally get to play Ultimate Alliance 2, except the the ports, like the re-releases, are so bad, technically speaking. I'm not talking in terms of, like, game content, even though it's missing, like, extra features or whatever. This was like, the sound is crackling, the controls are crap. It was just... Gonzo, right? For a game that plays smoothly in 2006 to come out in 2016 worse than the original version, you know that there's been a screw job here of galactic proportions. Here's the interesting thing, though. In 2006, Marvel were just Marvel, right? Okay. Guess who Activision pissed off with this poor job? Here comes Disney. And they're like, oh, we apologize, we're so sorry, we're going to get right on this. Because what happens is um, on Steam, which is one of the primary distribution platforms for PC games, everyone just started refunding the games. Because it's like, I can't play this crap. There are like sound crackling every five seconds, you can't even hear any dialogue. Get gone. And Marvel, now that they are owned by Disney, Disney, as we have said so many times, has very... Um, stringent quality control like they don't tend to let just anybody screw up their brand so this was a really interesting situation where i was sort of grateful that disney has purchased marvel you know what i mean because if this were 2006 and this story had happened marvel would have just been like well activision is activision and we don't really have anything to do with it oh well right Hmm. It is what it is. But Disney immediately stepped in and within a week, patches started showing up to fix all kinds of issues and uh, the content that was cut out, like the exclusive stuff that wasn't included, is going to be released for free. So it's weird that I'm saying this, right? But Because Disney does have sort of a... Cutthroat worldview? Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I mean, we have said so many times, like they they're extremely strict and most of the time that doesn't work out in the favor of people who want to enjoy their content right it, they tend to be very 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 heavy on control but this was a situation where activision which is a crap company just so you know they're really bad just in general. okay they suck they suck you know they're the they're the sort of like triple a 
uh, uh, gold star companies that allow themselves to rest on their laurels because they assume that the people will buy their crap anyway, which really makes them a perfect fit for Marvel when you think about it. Oh, but, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that, but that, Disney that's, was that's like, Marvel oh, Comics no. right there. Yeah, but Disney was like, you will not put our name on this game and then just expect people to, you know, mock it and criticize it online and we're not going to have anything to do with that. Oh, no, 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 no. So this was really a weird situation of, I'm grateful for Disney being control freaks, what can I say? And yet Marvel is still allowed to publish Bendis' Iron Man. That they don't care about. Who reads comics these days? Like, I'm convinced that Disney... Just, just us, apparently. Yeah, I mean, I'm convinced that people at Disney don't even read. Like, they don't know that Marvel publishes books. They're just sort of like, oh, you know, just reach in the box and see if there's anything we can turn into a movie. Hmm. I don't think they, they know or care, which, okay, whatever. Uh, shall we talk movies? Because Let's talk movies. Each of us has seen a movie. Well, before we talk about each of us, the, the movies that each of us have seen, I just want to add one tiny thing. Ah, okay. There's a Rocketeer reboot coming up. Right. Hollywood Reporter claims that Disney, speaking of Disney, right? There's our segue. Uh, Hollywood Reporter is claiming that Disney is planning to reboot uh, The Rocketeer, right? The 1991 film starring, what was his name? Billy Campbell? Nobody knows. Yeah, I'm it was sure. a Joe Johnston movie. That's the one we yeah. heard about. And Timothy and, Dalton was great there. As, oh, uh, he was fantastic as uh, the and, bad guy. Yeah. Oh, uh, Jennifer Connelly was in that too. Oh yeah, she was gorgeous. There anyway, um, so they're rebooting—not exactly rebooting. It's a sequel, right? It's set six years after the first movie with a black female lead. Hmm. Now I have something to say here. And to be completely fair, this is not originally my point. It's something that Kenny Wisdom mentioned in a recent episode of uh, View from the Gutters that really resonated with me, which is that Disney and Marvel specifically, at this point in their production cycle, right, they seem to be cresting on this trend of replacing established characters with more diverse characters, in itself, this is not necessarily a bad thing, right? We've talked before about how sometimes if you want characters to stick in the market, you do have to give them the sort of iconic title, right? There's no other way yeah. to sustain them. But the point that Kenny Wisdom brought up was that in a lot of these situations, the spectacle of replacing these characters hasn't really produced consistently good stories as a result of that, right? Right. For every Kamala Khan success story that we get, there's Robbie Reyes, who made it 12 issues and then sunk like a stone, right? Yeah. For all that I enjoyed it, it didn't last. So, the, I, I am... Like, you know, you hear the story about uh, Riri Williams, right? This 15-year-old black girl who's replacing Tony Stark. And you had Sam Williamson replacing um, Steve Rogers. You have Jane Foster replacing Thor. And some of these has have been successful, but it does seem to me that if you overplay that hand, you run the risk of it becoming shallow spectacle. I I think one of my big concerns is that when you do it with characters like the Rocketeer, is that it ends up being well, she's not the Rocketeer, she's oh, the yeah. other Rocketeer, and. I I like The Rocketeer because I grew up on that movie. And, you know, the original comic, I'm hot and cold about it. It's it's a great-looking comic, right? Johnson yeah. was a great artist. Say what you will about him as a writer. Mm -hmm. But 
does the public really cry for Rocketeer? If Disney had had announced that they're releasing the live-action Rocket Girl movie, you know, new IP, would there be that many fans, you know, is there a difference? Is there, like, a very strong base of Rocketeer fans just rearing to go? We, you know, one million tickets sold in advance simply on the brand name Rocketeer? No. No. No, you can But create I- new IP, and she can be ori- an original black female character. Because when you do it like that, and... I can already see, you know, the stupid idiots on the internet who are crying oh, about God. destroying the original Rocketeer. And I can assure you, 99.99999% of them <laughs> not only have never read the, the Rocketeer, not only have they never seen the movie, they have not heard of the character until somebody on the internet said, oh my God, they're replacing a white guy. With a black woman. Oh noes. Uh, no, you're, you're I think right. about it now, uh, isn't? Dr. Doom, Aroma. So, you know, they're replacing Iron Man with two minority characters. Oh, that's an interesting question. Yeah. I don't know. Like, Do- he... Dr. Doom's ethnicity, I think, is, yeah. is changed just as much as Magneto's ethnicity. Because, the, like, the problem with Dr. Doom is, is that his original depiction as Aroma, because it went through John Byrne, right? It had the tendency to be very, very, very... John very... Byrne-ish. Stereotypical is the word that I would say. Like, yeah, were, yeah, like I said, John Burnish. They they were wearing like bowler hats. I don't know <laughs> if that. I don't know if that's actually a thing. It like it reminds you so much of like 1975 giant sized X Men Nightcrawler being chased through Germany yeah. by pitchforks and torches. It's like, is this 1875 or 1975? No, it, it was a ran a ran fair, and they've seen him, and then they started chasing him. <laughs> But wouldn't you then assume that he belonged to the Ren Faire? No, no, no. He was passing through a Ren Faire, and they're like, oh my god, a demon. We wish we had our modern guns, but we only have these pitchforks. Why? He would totally fit in in a Ren Faire, though. Uh, uh, Greg Puck, was it, who wrote the recent Storm series that lasted like seven issues? Yeah, I think that was Puck. Yeah, he had a nice rewrite of Storm's origin in that context in which the Kenyan villagers knew she wasn't a goddess, but they were like, Well, there's this girl, and she can bring us water when we need it, so let's humor her. Yeah. Which I think is a good rewrite of that origin story. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of dismantling many of the problems with it, of the, you know, oh my god, people people in Africa, they're yeah, but, ignorant. But I think that you're right, like, in relation mm. to the Rocketeer, and, and, like, connected to hold all this notion of revision and, and diversity, which is that... I, I don't see the inherent value of taking the Rocketeer and making it a legacy. Like, if, if there had been a legacy that was already established, like, for example, um, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, right? Inherent in the premise of Buffy the Vampire Slayer is the notion that any woman could become the Slayer, right? So, in season two, when Kendra shows up, this Caribbean girl, right? She's yeah. the Slayer, and she is the Slayer just as Buffy is the Slayer. Because the premise allows for the idea of legacy, of transmitting an identity across ethnicities, uh, across culture. I, I don't have a problem with making uh, the Rocketeer a legacy character. My problem is with the idea that the only way that we can create, uh, we can put a black female character on screen is that If we make her a variation of a white character, in which case the major perception is always that she's just the distaff counterpart. Yeah. 
Although I guess the benefit in that case would just be that because there is no current, like the Rocketeer has not been front and center in any film or television no. outside of comics for decades. So I don't know. Like it, it, it does keep going back to Ghostbusters, doesn't it? Because I'm thinking like the, the part of the backlash here was the notion that for so many years, people had been looking at Aykroyd and uh, Murray. Uh, Murray and I guess Ramus when he was alive and Ernie Hudson and being like, at some point, you know, these guys are going to get back together and people were always talking about it. I don't know that Rocketeer has that kind of visibility. No, where, where the Rocketeer make... is not as popular as the Ghostbusters. No. And so then it's like, okay... Who's going to be making that comparison of she's not like Dem? I don't even remember his name. Cliff, what was the name of the guy? Cliff, Cliff something, Steel, right? Stiff Clifford something. Cliff no, Clifford. his first name was Clifford because the mm. the mechanic that he lived with called him Clifford. Yeah, right. I, I, I mean, come on. If, if you do something <laughs> like that, I think the best idea of how to do it is the new Star Wars movies, in which it's not just restart the whole thing from the beginning. It's Bring the old characters in and have them pass the crown. And I think a lot. Yeah. I think the Ghostbusters movie, which I didn't like, I, I admit, I thought it was unfunny as hell. Oh, I love it. Yeah, fine. I think it. Uh, there have been a lot more goodwill if you had the original actors appear as like you know passing the crown moment. Uh, the question then becomes: though, do they overshadow in doing that? Like, for example, passing the torch, like in the Force Awakens. There's yeah. no scene where they're like, I think it's more that they treat it as if, okay, the, all this stuff with the Death Star and all that, that happened. Yeah. But when you think about it, like in The Force Awakens, I think there is an argument to say that, for example, like uh, Harrison Ford's presence in the film does overshadow to some extent the new characters, right? Because he's there for so much of it and he gives like so much of the exposition, whatever. Um, Carrie Fisher's role would be more appropriate, I think, right? Like, she's there, she's running the show, but she's not, like, front and center throughout the entire thing with all these new characters. It's mm -hmm. just like, you know, you can step back. Yeah, we'll see. My big hope for the for the new Rocketeer movie is that they find a good director who can do it something appropriately old-fashioned. Yeah, they they need to go retro on this. They've been yeah, talking about... The jo Joe Johnston, you know, his old charm is that he can do it, like, like the 1930s serials, only with higher production values and yeah. better acting. That was what it felt like. Yeah. You know, watching... And in fact, I think that, like, the charm of the 91 movie is, in fact, you can watch it even today and feel like that retro charm. Yeah. But on the other hand, they've also said that, like, they're moving the Rocketeer into the Cold War. Six years later, it's... I don't oh, know how that works. It's a Cold War, Yeah, I it's guess. Sort of like, eh... Did it didn't work for Indiana Jones. No, it didn't. No, it didn't. Although, I mean, let me ask you this then. Like, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull is a horrible movie mm. on every possible level. But I, I, like, I, like, I like the chase scenes. Eh. But let me ask you this. When you look at, like, the style and the design of that movie, did it feel like a 1950s thing? Not really, no. It felt like an Indiana Jones movie with aliens bolted on top. Aliens. Oh, what was he thinking? Well, anyway, that's that. Those are movies to discuss in the future. Mm. We have movies to discuss in the present. Uh, DC has released two movies: one to cinemas, one to uh, home viewing DVD uh, 
Blu-ray. Do they still make DVDs? Oh, yes, they do. Mm, okay. Uh, they've released The Killing Joke, which Sean had seen, and they've yeah. released Suicide Squad to Cinema, which I had seen. Yes, I will be seeing it on Sunday. Mm. Tom. Okay, the Suicide Squad movie yes. came out to thunderously negative reviews. Not as bad as BVS. I think now it's on like uh, 30% of Rotten Tomatoes, while uh, Batman v Superman, you know, dropped to the low 20s. Yes, and I will have something to say about Rotten mm-hmm. Tomatoes, but let's save that for yeah. after the review. Box office is still uncertain. It's tracking to be the biggest opening for August, uh, okay. even outselling Guardians of the Galaxy for the first weekend. The question is, does it have steam? Because, again, Batman v Superman had a huge opening. It had a great opening. It just fell off very, very quickly once the bad reviews came in and word of mouth, you know, ruined the thing for them. Right. So I've seen the movie itself, and it's not good. With uh, When I came out of it, I was just, oh, this is terrible. I had a time to sleep on it a bit. And I will say this. It's not the worst comic book movie of the recent time. Now, I haven't watched Batman v Superman all the way to the end. I've tried watching it recently, and I was just bored. And Was Martha another... there? Hmm? Was Martha there? Uh, no, no, no. So it's already better than BBS. <laughs> and, or, you know what? Fantastic Four. The new Fantastic oh Four. Oh, my was, God. It, it wasn't just bad. It was boring. And Suicide Squad, at least, it's not dull. Because it's so... It's such a hyper movie that even the scenes where people are talking and expositing are just mm. like, you know, quick cut it and, you know, shooting stuff on screen and doing like poppy soundtrack. Uh, but, you know, you can't, you can't polish a turd. Not like that. And mm. this is a movie that whatever it was originally died in post production. Because I'm not, I'm not a film student, but even I can see that somebody, someone at the editing room brutalized that thing. Just mm. because you have an exposition scene for the two main villains, uh, protagonists, whatever, Harley Ooh, Quinn and Deadshot. Uh-huh. You're introduced to them straight ahead. You know, you see them in prison and you're like being threatening. And then right after that, you have another scene of Amanda Waller sitting and explaining to some generals about all the prisoners, including, again, Harley Quinn and Deadshot. Mm. And then you have yet another scene of her sitting with more generals explaining why she's forming the Suicide Squad. God. And one of examples, one of the examples that really pops to my head is there's this scene where uh, Deadshot is having his big save the day moment. You know, he's standing in a car and he's shooting at a bunch of evil bad guys. And for some reason, during that scene, which really calls for, you know, a big slow-mo over the head, over the shoulder shot... They keep cutting back to Smith's back as he's standing on a car shooting at stuff. So he just looked like Will Smith standing on a car and doing bang, bang, bang with his hands. Mm. For some reason, they chose to cut it like this. And I'm just looking at them saying, why? That's weird. Just, it's just terrible editing, like amateur level. This should be film curriculum 101, how not to edit a movie. How was the cast? Um. Some are good, some are... Jai Courtney, that human, I don't know, dish rag, is actually pretty good as Captain Boomerang because they always take that guy to play like, the, you know, the big, serious, badass guy and he's just so dull at it. Mm-hmm. But Captain Boomerang is a jerk ass and a comic relief, so, you know, he gets to play it up and he's fine in it. Will Smith sells it on charisma, I guess. You know, his lines are terrible, his motivation is nowhere... 
His design is okay-ish. And Margot Ruby, she's good looking. Ouch. I, I'm, I'm so, she's a good, she can be a good actress, I assume, but this movie spends so many shots on cleavage and ass, cleavage and ass. No, yeah. no. Yeah, yeah. Why? Why? I don't know. Just... That was exactly the wrong... Like, that is exactly the wrong thing to do with Harley Quinn. And Joel Kinman is terrible. She, he's Rick Flag. He's terrible at it. Rick Flag is in this movie? Yeah. I give fault. Well, you need, you need to do Rick Flag with the Suicide Squad. Do you? Yeah, he's a main character. And I've <sighs> been reading recently the original Suicide Squad, the Ostrander, Mandrake, uh, McDonald, was it, run? Yeah, that and probably a, didn't help the comparison. No, no, because that's a great comic, right? That's a very good comic book. And you know what? If you like the the New 52's version of the Suicide Squad, the everybody's extreme and badass and everybody's like a murderer and the the moral ambiguity of, of Amanda Waller is replaced with her just being a stone-cold killer who doesn't care for anybody. If you like that version, I guess the film works for you. Yeah. And yeah, there, there's some nice action bits, and you know the design is colorful, and it keeps the idea that these characters are from different genres, you know, from different, you know, heroes universes, and like mashed together. Okay. So you know they're all sitting on a plane, and you know they're given this huge, this big exposition about the mission, and then just Katana shows up, and Rick Flag like, oh, that's Katana, her sword uh, drinks souls, so be careful. Huh. Uh, yeah, it's it's just I, there. I, there's the soul of a good movie there somewhere, but really, it's been it's trapped in hack. Katana's sword. And what we've talked about before that the defense of the many of the DC fans was that it's an autorial studio, right? The directors can do what they want there, and it's not just uh, a uniform vision forced upon by Hyde management. Well, that's a lie because I've seen David Ayer movies. I like David Ayer movies. This is not a David Ayer movie. Well, listen, it really even, it's not. Even before this movie came out though, I'm not entirely sure how convincing the claim of auteur perspectives in DC films was because like the the people who were getting their vision across without studio interference were Zack Snyder and David Goyer, but Zack Snyder and David Goyer are the people who are running the entire DC cinematic universe. It's not exactly you know, auteur to say that, like, these specific individuals, if Kevin Feige wanted to do a Marvel movie, then it would pretty much probably look the way that he wanted it to without any other input, right? Mm. Like, it's it's no big stretch for the showrunners, so to speak, to have their vision communicated clearly, for good or for bad, right? It doesn't even matter. Like, show me other directors who are not getting interfered with, and then I'll buy the theory that... DC supposedly treats their auteurs better. Yeah, and I, I don't like to play this DC versus Marvel war because A, I'm an image fan, B, I'm not 13. <laughs> but, you know, at this point, really, the DC Universe movie, movie, movie-verse, whatever, looks done. You know, well, the next movie is another Zack Snyder movie. Even with Studio Interference, I don't see it becoming a good movie. People say, well, maybe Wonder Woman can save the day, but at this no, point... No, they thought four, that about Suicide At this Squad. point, we're four movies in, right? Uh, three. Uh, no, one. Man of Steel, Batman v Superman, Suicide Squad, and Justice League. 
Or does Wonder Woman come before Justice League? I think Wonder Woman comes before Justice League. Uh, three bad movies right out of the gate. That's, yeah. not, that's not a good starting not point. And oh. the big question, will, will the bad reviews hurt the movies? Because mm. Warner Brothers would be fine with the Transformers situation in which, you know, the bad reviews come and come, but nobody cares. Each movie makes a billion dollars. Michael Bay literally doesn't care about reviews. He doesn't. Because, he doesn't. No, but, he doesn't. He doesn't go up on Twitter and says, "Well, I don't care about reviews because when the director Bay, of your movie." But hang on, go, hang on. Hmm? Michael Bay doesn't have competition, though. That's the thing. Transformers movies can get horrible reviews and still come out on time because they're not up against another Hasbro license or whatever that's being held by another company, right? Yeah, and as we've talked before, DC movies make money. What they don't make is the bragging awards money. The my manager can talk up to the Disney managers and say, "Oh, by the way, my movie outputted your movies in reviews and money too." And then you smoke a hundred dollar bill, right? Because this, it's the soup. The Batman v Superman movie made what nine hundred million dollars or so. That's uh, a lot of money, even with the huge production cost, the ridiculous production cost. It's a lot of money, and you get the sense that if. If Warner just wanted to make money, you know, just cut down on the price. Because apparently Suicide Squad cost $170 million, and I have no idea why. Wow. It's, you know, it, there are facts and fights and CGI creatures jumping and blowing stuff, but $170 million for what? Is it CGI or practical? Well, a lo- the main characters are all practical. You know, Killer Croc is not an effect. It's a guy in, a, in prosthetics. Oh, cool. Yeah, That's and refreshing. you know the the bad guys are mostly are either CGI or again just yeah. prosthetics, but there isn't a lot of stuff there. It's not it's not Transformers where again every second on screen you have CGI all over the place. Right. So I really well, have I no know. idea. Maybe the actors I mean, are very expensive. I don't really get like economic and financial considerations for films. It's like completely not my field. But there was one interesting thing about uh, Suicide Squad, if we are bringing in the DC versus Marvel mm. fanboy war, something very interesting happened when the word of mouth for Suicide Squad started spreading. Okay. A group of DC fans went to change.org, you know, the petition website, yeah, and made the argument that Rotten Tomatoes needs to be shut down because Disney are clearly bribing reviewers to slam DC films in order to make themselves look better. Two points here. First of all, Rotten Tomatoes, for those of you who have eyes and reading comprehension, is an aggregator of reviews, not a source. All it does is find other reviews, collect them all together with some kind of algorithm, and determine the average grade of the film based on those reviews. So if there is a conspiracy here, uh, it does not appear to involve one site, but rather all of these reviewers who are coming together with a consensus. Now, they might have their own bias. You never know, right? Here's the other problem, though, with accusing Rotten Tomatoes of having bias against Warner Brothers and DC. Rotten Tomatoes is partly owned by Warner Brothers. They have a minority share in their... Uh, I believe. Minority stake in their shares. Yeah. But, Tom, they might be onto something here. Because follow this logic, right? They're saying that Warner Brothers has a biased agenda against Warner Brothers. 
<laughs> which would explain so much about these movies, wouldn't it? It's a sa- it's sabotage. It's internal sabotage. They are shooting themselves in every possible foot. It's a Hitchcock mid Coen Brothers movie about a saboteur in the movie studio. It's brilliant. I don't know what their motivation would be, but it does make more sense than the idea that there's some kind of council of reviewers that exists only to get money from Marvel. And yeah, I imagine, you know, there's a scene in the future movie about the making of this movie where a Warner, <laughs> Brother, where a Warner Brother executive, you know, turns to the camera, takes off his shirt, and on the back you see the Marvel logo tattoo, and he's like, my no. father was a Marvel oh fan, God. and he told me... Destroy DC. Actually, there's a... Right, DC also got the Hanna-Barbera license, right? Mm -hmm. So what's going to happen is the Scooby-Doo gang is going to show up. And they're going to grab Zack Snyder and they're going to pull off his mask and it's going to be Kevin Feige underneath. (laughs) And he's going to be like, I would have gotten away with it too. It's not just you rotten kids. You damn fanboys. And (laughs) uh, mentioned the one bit of comics news from San Diego Comic-Con that actually grabbed my attention. Sure. Uh, which is about the DC Hanna-Barbera license. Oh, okay. Garth Ennis is doing dastardly and motley. Nope. Yes. No. I rebuke and, that in the name of the Lord. Nope. And apparently he asked for it. Of course it, he did. It's, it's not something they forced upon him. No, 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 He no. sent them an offer. Tom. He wants to do it. I love it. Tom, I can absolutely see Garth Ennis' twisted mind come up with scenarios for Dastardly and Muttley. Well, it's, would... a, it's a World War One story, technically. He loves these kinds of things. Uh-uh. Nope. Nope. Nope, 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 nope. Do I need to see uh, Dastardly, like, try to make play with Penelope? No, I don't. I'm good. I'm good with that. I'm okay. Okay, uh, back to the movies. Now, uh, yeah, I, so... think, I think the petition thing is being a bit overplayed in the media because one of the effects, <laughs> of, mo- uh, one of the effects of social media is that every idiot, if he's stupid enough, gets his voice amplified. Remember when the Mad Max movie came out and you had oh, these yeah. MRAs? And sure. how, many, how many people were there in that petition of uh, Stop Mad Max? Like, literal hundreds of people, which is nothing, right? Yeah. But because they were so stupid, and people retreated their stupidity, and people talked about their stupidity, you had this strange notion as if they matter, as if there were a majority voice. And that petition, I've looked at it. Many of the responses are obvious trolls or jokes. So, I'm sorry, you have... So, saying somebody was idiot online is not news. No, but there is... Literally, it's... The opposite of news. It's the sun going up. But there is one thing that sort of leaps out here. And again, like, I... Obviously, I'm mocking these conspiracy theorists because it is nonsense. Yes. But I do understand where the frustration is coming from. Because DC fans are clearly in a position where they want to be able to enjoy these films... Right? They want to be able to sit down and say, you know, we have our thing and it's just as good as Marvel's thing and we can enjoy it on its own terms. And DC has done everything in their power to screw up, right? The whole thing with the Suicide Squad, according to reports that came out after the movie, I mean, never mind that David Ayer was on the red carpet in the premiere screaming, fuck Marvel, right? And then later quoting Emiliano Zapata saying he'd rather die on his feet than live on his knees. So dramatic. Right. Mm -hmm. All of that aside, I can understand like the perspective of a fan of DC who does not understand why they are screwing up on such a galactic level. Like it doesn't seem to make sense that Man of Steel comes out 
And people are making fun of it and mocking it in ways that they don't with Marvel, right? They just don't have that kind of vitriol. So clearly this interpretation of the blue, gray, dark, whatever isn't working. Let's do some more of that in Batman v Superman, right? And now the Suicide Squad, so the story that's been coming out in the aftermath, is that there were apparently two versions of this film, two competing cuts, one that was very humorous and one that was sort of dark and serious. And based on what you're saying, it sounds to me like they just smashed these two cuts together. It's obvious, really, tone shift, tone difference. So, uh, yeah. Scenes repeating, ideas repeating, nothing made clear. Right. And so I can understand the mentality of someone who wants to say, like, there has to be another reason, right? It can't just be that the people at Warner Brothers are so completely inept that they're doing this again, right? Like, I get it. I understand the temptation uh, of looking for causality. It, it's seen, still fiction. It's still a complete lie, right? There is no conspiracy. I've but, seen many people saying, well, we can't say it's bad if you read between the lines because if we admit it's bad, maybe they won't make more movies. <sighs> Which is, well, we've got, we've got to like it, otherwise we won't get the Justice League movie. And if the Justice League movie is bad, we've got to like it, otherwise we won't get the... Justice League Dark movie or the Shazam movie or whatever. And, I am you know, pretty I, sure. I, I'm, I'm a comic book fan. I'm, for my sins, a superhero fan. But I want to see good movies. I don't want to see bad yeah. superhero movies just because they're superhero movies. I I don't care. You know, I, I, I'm thinking of example. I grew up on, I don't know, Grant Morrison's Doom Patrol. And I would love to see a, you know, a wacky, surrealistic Doom Patrol movie. But if it's bad, I'm not going to sit there and say... Well, you know, I've got to say I like it because hopefully yeah. they'll make more of it. Like, was that mentality not the reason we got Batman and Robin? Was no. that not like people went and saw Batman Forever and they're like, mm, I guess if we don't support it, they won't make more. Well, you got more. Well, I'm well, not sure well, that's see, what anyone wanted. Uh, the, the next episode, by the time next episode comes out, we can talk box office because we'll have two weeks yeah. worth of data. Yeah, that's true. But, um, no, it's just, it's, it's, it's clearly frustrating for people who are invested in the idea of a DC cinematic universe to constantly have to deal with cold critical reception, right? I get that. I do. It doesn't change anything about the quality of the film, though. Right? Like, being frustrated and wanting to just blindly support mediocrity in the hopes that eventually it'll work out. It's like, no, if you support Suicide Squad in its current mediocre form, all you're really doing is telling WB that you want more of that and not to do better. Well, isn't that the comic book collector mindset? You've got to keep on reading it even if you don't like it because I guess it might be good someday or it was good once so you owe it. And that's how we got the 90s and the Clone yeah. Saga and Onslaught yeah. and yeah, all that Yeah, but we don't owe DC nothing. No, God no. no. We don't owe Marvel nothing either. Yeah, like, yeah. You know. if, Mar- if Marvel screws up, we'll see. <laughs> right? Yeah. I, I, when Ant-Man came out, I said I didn't like it. I thought it was a mediocre movie. And, yeah, and, like, I, and when Avengers 2 came out, you said I didn't like it. I thought I it was didn't. a terrible movie. The difference being that there's, okay, like, that's, that goes to, like, the core of the conspiracy theory, right? When there is a film franchise that goes on for 10, 12, 15 films, right? And one or two of them don't appeal to you. You can sort of shake it off at that point and be like, you know what? This is some bullcrap. It's not working for me. 
get back to me in three months. We'll see the next one, right? And in point of fact, like, I did not care for Age of Ultron at all. I loved Civil War. So as far as I'm concerned, that's, like, I will never rewatch Age of Ultron. I'll rewatch Civil War. So, you know, it it, it sort of, it balances out in the end. When you only have poor performances for three or four films, and not just any films, right? Like, Man of Steel was supposed to set the tone. Batman v Superman was supposed to be the launch pad for all of these DCU characters going forward, right? They had that whole scene with, um, you've heard about this, right? Like, Wonder Woman finds some kind of flash drive. So you see the, you see, we've already seen in SDCC, we've seen the new If you, if you like that scene, you would love Suicide Squad. If you like people watching data. No, no. You remember, you remember that scene in Guardians of the Galaxy, the two minute montage of them being taken to prison and we're being told what each guy is? Yeah. So imagine that only 40 minutes long. Oh, God. And you have the first opening act of Suicide Squad. No. Speaking Uh, of mediocre DC movies, and again, like, look at how all of these things are connected. I I, I understand the conspiracy mentality, even if it's a lie. Look at, so The Killing Joe came out. Uh, I'll preface this by saying that even before I saw The Killing Joe, I was aware of something remarkable, Tom remarkable, which is that this movie was aired at San Diego Comic-Con and people booed. SDCC, I'll remind you, is fanboy Nirvana, right? Nobody ever criticizes. Nobody ever asks hardball questions. They're all there to get hype. And that was a movie with a lot of hype starring Mark Hamill. And, and Kevin Conroy. Yeah, that that was the, that was the relaunch, the reunion that you know, fans of Batman the Animated Series have been clamoring for for 10 years, I'd say, with the one of the most popular Batman stories of all time as a source material. Mm-hmm. So here's the thing, Tom. Oh, boy. Okay. Regardless, regardless of how you may feel towards the killing joke as a story... And in fact, we have talked about like Alan Moore not necessarily being the most enthusiastic about it. He has expressed regret from time to time as to how that story does what it does. Whatever, right? Death of the author, his opinion doesn't count anyway. Even if you think that it's a fantastic story and that it defines as much as Year One or Dark Knight Returns, right? Batman for the New Age, all well and good. You cannot deny on an objective level that it is the nadir of Barbara Gordon, right? It is her lowest point. That's not a knock on the book's quality. But you ha- even if you think that it's a seminal work, you can't exactly argue that it shows Barbara Gordon at, like, the low point of her life, right? Yeah, she's she's a piece. She's not a character. She, she, she's, just, she's there to be shot at. Exactly. She's, she's there to be a victim. Mm-hmm. So for going forward, right, you, we got Oracle out of it. We got all of these things that happened afterwards. Fine. But that book was nevertheless acknowledged as the lowest point in the arc of Barbara Gordon's storyline. It should be mentioned that at the time, you know, neither Moore nor Boland thought it was going to be in continuity. Oh, yeah. It was yeah. supposed to be a future story. That's why Barbara Gordon there is not bad girl. Yeah. Not only that, but Moore has said on occasion that he wasn't even sure if he should go through with it. He talked to, uh, I think it was Len Wayne, who was the yeah. editor. And Wayne was just like, cripple the bitch. Yeah. So, okay. 
All that aside, though, if we acknowledge that The Killing Joke is Barbara Gordon's lowest point, I kind of sort of have to congratulate Brian Azzarello for finding a way to shove her even lower. To do even worse by her than Alan Moore did. Because that takes dedication. Here's the problem with The Killing Joke as a film, right? They knew going into it that there's not enough content in this graphic novel to really sustain a hour and a half, two hour film, right? You need at least some kind of B-plot to keep things going. It can't just, because they weren't really going to go into the whole intricacies of the Joker's origin, blah, 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 blah. Their decision on what that B-plot would be is that Batgirl is, I don't know how to say this diplomatically, a deranged stalker who seduces Batman has what may be the most uncomfortable sex scene DC have put out in the last 20 years, and this is counting all of the stuff that was happening in the Schumacher Batman films, right? Mm-hmm. The most awkward and uncomfortable sex scene between Barbara Gordon and Bruce Wayne. They keep the masks on. It's better that way. You just know Frank Miller was sitting in the audience like, yes, yes, I like it. But anyway... Um, just awful. And then, so they have this sexual encounter, and then she's basically, like, hanging on to him really pathetically because, you know, I thought we were together, or whatever, and he's giving her the cold shoulder, of course, and then she gets shot. Mm. Look at how stupid, so stupid, okay? And if I needed more evidence that Brian Azzarello is turning into Frank Miller Jr., I just got it, okay? That is my ammunition. Because look at what he does here. In the original story, right? In the story, the way that Alan Moore puts it out, yes, the Joker shoots Barbara Gordon as an afterthought. She's not his target. But neither is... He doesn't know that she's Batgirl. He shoots her as a way to get to Commissioner Gordon, right? Because his objective in that story, right, his plan, so to speak, is to prove to to Commissioner Gordon that if you have a bad day, you can snap and go insane, just like the Joker did. So he shoots the Commissioner's daughter. He has no idea that this girl is a vigilante who has fought him in the past, that is connected to Batman, right, his other rival. It has nothing to do with that. Here, she becomes the girl who goes in the fridge so Kyle Rayner can find her, right? It's This is textbook fridging. She's shot because of her relationship to Batman. Because she was screwing him. And clearly, Batman hasn't suffered enough in his life. He needs more motivation to fight the Joker. So, of course, his one-time lover, who he was cold towards, is now a victim. Isn't that sad, Tom? Isn't it's that see- unfortunate? Without, without watching the movie, this whole notion seems wrong. Because it takes what's meant to be... A big, you know, confrontation between the ideologies of Batman and Joker and lowering it to the point of, you hurt my girlfriend. You touched my stuff, basically. Yeah, yeah. And not, you know what? Not even that. That's not even, like, the worst of it. I know that Bruce Timm has, for many years, been fixated on the idea of Bruce Wayne and Barbara Gordon having some kind of intimate relationship, right? You remember, like... It it was a plot point in Batman Beyond. It was a plot point in Batman Beyond, but there was one critical difference that apparently was either forgotten or Azzarello was like, nah, it's not important. When 
when their relationship is revealed in Batman Beyond, this is after Barbara Gordon had graduated from college, after she was sort of stopping with Batgirl, not stopping completely, but sort of at the tail end of that, right? It was happening at a point in time where Nightwing had already been established. Tim Drake had been victimized by the Joker, so like he was not in the picture anymore. And it was really just the two of them. In that particular context, I guess it's not as gross that they like have this intimate relationship and then break up. Uh, yeah, it makes Corp, sense. Corb Busiek had this point on Twitter. Well, well, again, you know, okay, if Busiek. anything else, listen to Corb <laughs> Busiek, where he noted that in the early seventies, uh, early early eighties, late seventies, Barbara Gordon was actually an adult. You know, she was when she was presented there, she was already. Uh, postgraduate she was almost a congresswoman for a time yeah and she was closer in age to uh bruce wayne than she was to dick dick was actually the young one in, in that you know right. trio of uh vigilance and even then right like even in that context in that configuration her relationship with nightwing wasn't like robbing the cradle he wasn't that much younger than her right yeah here, it's like, she's Batgirl, not necessarily at the start of her career, but pretty near there, because she can't fight for crap, and she's having sex with Batman. Creepy! So creepy and disgusting! And Azarello, of course, was not pleased with the crowd reaction, because he said some nonsense about... Oh, this film is really about showing how strong Barbara Gordon is. Look no. at what she can do. And someone in the audience was like, yeah, by using her vagina. I mean, no, no, come on. To be, to be fair, trying to, trying to be fair to a movie I haven't watched, I get the idea. Oh, the general, I get the general idea of, since one of the big problems, admittingly, in the original graphic novel, which I love, is that Barbara Gordon is nothing, right? She's just a tool there to start the plot going. The idea of, you know, expanding her, giving her a breath, a place to breathe on her own, is good in theory. What you're saying is the execution is terrible. No, even the theory here is wrong, because what happens is that in order... Yes, it is an apt criticism to some extent to say that Barbara Gordon is really just a prop in the original Killing Joke. But at the very least, you can make the counter-argument that that is the point of that specific event, right? The Joker could have literally shot anyone. He could have shot Alfred. He could have shot some random person in the street. It had nothing to do with who she was, right? It wasn't a statement on Barbara Gordon's uselessness that she gets shot in the graphic novel, right? Here, she gets shot because she's having sex with Batman and he's rejecting her and she doesn't know how to deal with it. So she gets shot, right? So that Batman can be more angry. That's what, fourth, fifth bad DC uh, animated universe oh movie in a row? Oh, God. I, I just. Since, I, since Gods and Monsters? But listen, but like, there's bad and there's you've got to be kidding me. You're saying that's the worst of the bunch? I, because I've had, I've, I'm having a hard time imagining something worse than uh, Son of Batman I'm, or Bad Blood. Even, which... no, look, even Bad Blood. I mean, I've watched Bad Blood. Bad Blood is terrible. It does Kate Kane so wrong. Bad, but... Bad Blood manages to destroy three stories in one movie, which is amazing. It manages to destroy Rocka, Rocka's Batwoman. It manages to destroy uh, Batman Robin by Morrison and even Battle for the Cowl, which is not a movie that should... Which is not the story that should have been able to defile God, even no. further because it starts bad. I don't know. This was why. worse. 
This was worse, worse, Tom, because it's like, it, it the, the problem here is that Azarello taps into a discussion that is so exhausting at this point, right? It has been a sticking point for fans of Batgirl in particular for so many years that people just don't get it. And for him to take a story that already does her, like, I, I guess, I mean, disservice is one way to put it, right? That, that puts her at her low point and says, you know what she needs on top of that? She needs to have sex with a guy who's like 20 years older than her and then get all emotional as girls do, right? They get emotional when you sleep with them. And then... You Ryan Azzarello probably wasn't the best choice oh to write that adaptation. God. He is turning... it. Like, I'm not exaggerating when I say like I'm watching this movie and it's like, did Frank Miller like burrow a hole in the back of your head and insert his own brain matter in there? Has his disease spread to you? Because I don't know what this is, right? This is... Mm-hmm. I swear to God, when they were... Like when they have that disgusting sex scene on the on the roof where he's like grabbing her butt and they're both still in costume, I swear to God, I got that all star Batman quote from Frank Miller, like, you know, we keep the masks on. It's better that way. You could absolutely like layer all star Batman quotes onto this film and not see any contradiction. I was horrified. I'm just like, no, why you know at least you know, for all the bad blood did not do justice to Batwoman. You can't say that it that it like insulted her, right? Like you can't say that it made her out to be like 180 degrees from any kind of redeeming value. Mm-hmm. Here it's like and I don't understand how Bruce Tim did this. Like I know he was hung up on this whole concept of Bruce and Barbara together, but I'm like at the bare minimum you could maybe not have that be a situation where he's like in his 30s and she's maybe 21. Maybe like could we not do that? Do you need to make make Batman like a creeper? It's bad and I mean the the Oh boy. I'm I'm so I'm so overwrought about this. But like the the character of Batman, right, is so easy to make fun of on the level of all he does is run around with teenage boys and girls. And, you know, it, it, it's sort of a cheap shot to say it, but it's like, why do you have to create a film that only reinforces that? Is he going to be banging Carrie Kelly next? What? What are you doing? For what? Like, literally, it, it did. And, and the, the insanity of it is that it didn't need to happen. Like, if you want to make the story of the killing joke actually be about Barbara Gordon, you could have just written Barbara Gordon, right? But, like, even in a scenario where they said to themselves that they needed to pad the story out so that it has more emotional impact or that, that it fits the film runtime, even then, it's still not about Barbara Gordon because her entire arc has to do with she can't get the bat dick anymore. So now she doesn't know what to do. Jeez. Oh my God. It is so, it's baffling to me, right? And, and like this in conjunction with Suicide Squad, like I, I don't know what to do with these people anymore, Tom. I don't know. And I don't even blame Kevin Conroy and Mark Hamill because it's like the script is a script. You know, you came. They both do the job, right? But am mm-hmm. I going to lie now and say that I feel like watching Batman the Animated Series and hearing the same voices and being like, please tell me you're not screwing her now, right, while I'm watching this? Because that I don't need. 
Uh, should we go on to comics Please. instead of bad movies? God, oh my God! Just I don't know how or why. I like I I can't reconstruct the decision making process here that mm. led to the kind of like. Ugh. Speaking of Batgirl, though, shall we start with Bad Girl? Let's... We go. We're going to the reviews now. <laughs> Uh, and we're gonna start with Bad Girl number one. This is from the DC Rebirth, uh, written by Hope Larson with art by Rafael Albuquerque. Yes. Shall I describe the plot? Shall you? Uh, sure, I'll go for it. Uh, so in yet another new direction for Barbara Gordon, mm-hmm. right? Uh, yeah. Following the whole DCU thing, she's decided to leave Burnside and visit Japan on vacation. She bumps into someone named Kai, and I have no idea if that's a past character or... It's, an, it's the old childhood friend, TM. Yeah, it's the old childhood friend, but uh, the thing that I'm not sure of is whether Larson invented this character or whether he actually is a supporting character from, like, uh, the, the past, like the Babs Tar run or something like that. I it's, don't, not, it's not that important. Whatever. Right. In any event, it turns out that Barbara's on a mission. She's looking for a Japanese superheroine named Fruit Bat who fought crime in the 40s and is still alive today at the age of 104, which mm-hmm. for DC superheroes in particular is rather unusual. Uh, Fruit Bat urges her to seek out a teacher. She jumps into a giant poster advertising an MMA Grand Prix in Singapore. The end. Also, uh, not ninjas, but like almost ninjas. Japanese schoolgirls. Yeah. Uh, Japanese schoolgirl ninjas because it's a Japan. It's a Japan. She's story. in Japan. Yeah. So, hmm. okay. What do you think of this issue, Tom? I thought it was okay-ish. Uh, I really like Albuquerque's art. It's nice after reading, you know, American Vampire, and knowing that he can, you know, turn up the brightness and the silliness and the funness. Mm-hmm. Because I'm sort of used to think of him in the context of something terrible and bloody is about to happen on the next page, and here it's like, oh no. He can do bright and fun and shiny. Yeah. And I think this book hits all the right points in establishing Larson's tone for the character and mission statement for her run on the book. The big problem is I'm not that interested in that mission statement. Yeah. Because I'm not sure... I don't know, you know, the after Rebirth and whatever, all new this DCU. I don't know the status quo as it is, but... If this is Barbara Gordon, who's been bad girl for a while, I'm not sure if she's in a place that she needs to do the finding a series of teacher, because that sounds like a plot for a beginner's character. Yeah. It it, It sounds like something that you should do if you do a bad girl year one story again. And like the, you're right. The continuity here is weird because like the fact that she references Burnside means that this is meant to be a follow up to the bad girl of Burnside, right? With Cameron Stewart. Which took which took place in a universe where Barbara was paralyzed during the Killing Joke, so yeah. she had experienced before, and she had experienced after, and now she's like, "Oh, I need a teacher." Right. No, but also remember, like when we reviewed that Batgirl first mm-hmm. issue, that was also a a sequel, like a follow up to a previous run. I think it was Gail Simone. The Gail Simone, yeah. Right? So this, ver- like Larson's version, seems to be in the same continuity timeline as yeah. the, both of those runs. So you're right. Like it does seem strange that she's like looking for teachers. At a because point, because she's, she's already a martial artist, right? So yeah, I, you know, I guess they're fudging it, and you know, it's certain kinds of martial arts, and you can play them. Just I'm not sure I'm interested with this idea for Batgirl. And and the the frustrating thing is, 
there's another angle here, but it also didn't make any sense for her. Like what happened is why the reason that she's interested in fruit bat specifically is because she wants to know how someone who fought crime for like 30, 40 years managed to survive. Right. And to make it to old age and she's living with her son. And like, she's saying she's doing like a research on old superheroes. And yeah, I why? actually really like the idea that in the DC world, outside of America, they had this whole series of crime fighters in the 40s and 50s and 60s, totally unconnected to anything that happened in America. Yeah, they survived Jeff Johns, basically. <laughs> but it, the, the the thing that was weird to me was that, at, like, what I didn't understand from Larson's approach here is, why is Barbara specifically interested in them? Like, is she... If she were looking for, right, the secret for superheroes to survive and to, like, have a life afterwards, that would be one thing, but this is not Barbara Gordon at the end of her career, Right. She is Batgirl. So like, has she suffered some kind of loss that she's trying to figure out? Like, I, I didn't understand the the motivation that she has to do this in the first place. Mm, yeah, I, I'm reminded of Wade's Daredevil run, which, you know, took a different turn. But it had and its plot point, the idea that before that Daredevil was at its lowest ebb ever. Yeah. Right. That so he needed to to relearn and start a new and take a new direction. And here it's like. Why? Why well, this is this like change? her third it's new not... direction. She can't like. Yeah. No. If if a reason exists, it's not explained in this issue. It's assumed that you already know it, which is a problem for an issue number one. I would say. Yeah. Like if it had been, like if something had happened to Dinah, for example, to Black Canary, okay. and that's why like she's looking for the secret of how superheroes and like superhero women in particular can survive that would be one thing but it's like she doesn't seem to be like grieving or mourning she hasn't suffered any kind of loss i, I don't want to oversell the badness it's not a bad issue um no it's, it's just no, no, no it's, it's perfectly fine it's just i don't think it rises above its own premise as it were no not really I, and i've noticed with a lot of the dcu well a lot i've only read a few many of those i've read seems to be again paced more for the trade because i remember reading uh, new Superman, the uh, Gwen Lan Yang one. Yeah. And thinking, this the first issue reads like a great endpoint for the first chapter of an arc. Yeah. Rather than it's oh it's the end of an issue. Okay, I guess. Yeah. No, but that's not new. We like it's writing for the trade is something that's well very well known at this point. Um, there was one other issue I had with Larson's writing specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, she tends to rely a bit too much on contrivance for my taste. Like, the idea that Barbara randomly stumbles onto a hotel where her old friend is, so they can have the as-you-know flashback. Uh, and then, like, at the end of the issue, having been told that she needs to find a teacher, which is a really vague and not at all specific instruction, like, just go find a teacher somewhere, she almost literally jumps into a sign that advertises it, like this MMA contest in Singapore. Well, I, I don't have a problem with uh, the idea of the find the teacher and then you immediately stumble on a club because that's such a well-used trope of martial arts stories. Whenever somebody is told, you must find a teacher, he will find a teacher five minutes later. Yeah. And and as for the friend, I because they're, you know, they're hinting at the background of it, there's something more to it. Yeah. And I assume it's going to be revealed later that, you know, he was planning for her, he has a reason to be there. I guess. That doesn't make I, it any less I, predictable. I, no, no, because I don't think it's a coincidence. Right. I think the second one is a coincidence, but in the case of the, these types of stories, 
it's an earned one. It's like, yeah. yeah, you can do it. It's like, you can say it's a coincidence that Peter Parker was bitten by the, regu- well, no, by the radioactive I, spider. I guess the problem is, like, it's sort of a no-win scenario for Larson because if it mm-hmm. is a contrivance, then, you know, the, then that's weak. If it's not a contrivance, then it's predictable. Like, he just happens to show up. Of course, he has some kind of dark secret. You know, like, very, very conventional and cliche. And to be completely honest... um, I, I guess it for, works for because Batgirl was never, you know, the martial artist of the Bat group no, or whatever. Was it was Kane. always Black Canary or Batman himself. No, or or Cassandra Kane. Yeah, was, yeah. You know, so it's like, even that seems kind of weird. That, like, she's going through this whole martial artist training program and it's like, okay, but you had a Batgirl who was like that. Why are no, we no, doing I, it to I, I think Gordon? it's perfectly fine that she's not that and that she needs to learn to be that for the point of the story but in that case i would really want the issue to establish more what makes her work as a bad girl as it were because they're talking about her you know i uh, how do you say it memory idyllic her eidetic memory yeah yeah so it would have been nice if before the martial arts thing we had a bit of a detective thing going on to show well this is what she can do as a bad girl but she needs to learn this other stuff because Oh look! Here comes ninjas, and she's not that good at dealing with ninjas. She's she's not. A, I mean, this is part of the problem with the sort of martial arts trope of oh, I just found a master. That it doesn't require her to investigate, right? She literally bumps into fruit bat. Yeah, and then the, no, she she looked for fruit bat. Yeah, fair. but the, you know, she sort of finds her really easily without any real investigation, and then gets into a situation that she did not create where. You know, Fruit Bat sort of reveals her, her little, like, crouching tiger hidden dragon thing going on. And then, go find the teacher. And then she finds the teacher. It's like, okay, but if you, you know, Batgirl's whole thing is her intelligence, right? Her, her mm-hmm. memory, her investigative, her investigative ability. I, I don't know. It just seems really strange. Right. Uh, shall we go on to IDW? Let's. Okay, we're going to talk about... It's my choice. This one is all for yeah, you, Tom. Yeah, all it's Tom, it has Tom written all over. Predator versus Judge Dredd versus Aliens. A four-issue miniseries. This is issue one. Uh, written by John Lyman of Chew fame. And with art by Chris Mooneyham. And colors by Michael Atia. Take it away, Tom. It's all yours. <laughs> okay. And the plot is as it is. You, we have a predator landing on the future, you know, Judge Dread Earth, and he's immediately kidnapped by an evil Doctor Moreau-esque scientist for a series of experiments. And apparently, one of the experiments is going to bring to life or clone one of the skulls within the predator ship, which surprise, surprise, a xenomorph yeah. from the Alien series. And in the middle of it all, you have Judge Dread on a mission to the cursed Earth, where Obviously, he will bump into this evil scientist, and he's chasing after the a cult of uh, machine worshippers, and their machine messiah. Right. So, Predator, Judge Dredd, and Aliens. Three great tastes that go okay together, I guess? Mm. It's, it's... Because each of... <laughs> okay, each of these franchises, you can sort of boil down to the thing that makes them stand up so aliens is like it's the cold horror it's a terrible thing that chases you and you cannot stop it and predator is like the 80s all-out action explosion thing and judge red is it's black humor right it's a very 
funny grim satire. Mm, and I don't know if I agree with those designations. Together, Lyman seems to have sort of flattened them all into this one, you know, homogenous um, stew. Well, part of the problem is also, like, these franchises have gone through not so much Judge Dredd, but Alien, for example, like what you describe as the the core feeling of like the Alien franchise really only applies to the first film. Uh, yeah, the well, second film the one, was it's the one. It's the one everybody talks about. Uh, I think Aliens might be a little more popular, but again, like it's it does show like on the one hand, it's you have the unstoppable, horrible one monstrosity stalking you through a spaceship. But then aliens comes along and it's like Marines, let's get the bugs or whatever. And then of course, the... uh, but yeah, but then they all die. Of and course, it becomes a horror story again. Yeah. I, what's interesting to me is the story is not really that interested in neither the predator nor the alien. The aliens don't even appear, and Judge Red is almost a background. The most focused character seems to be the scientist and his crew of, uh, I don't know, Knights of Wendigore. But this just—that's what they are, right? Yeah, they're the, the damn Knights of Wendigore. All they need is like the cow lady to show up. <laughs> um, but I mean, again, like, can we really say at this point that that's a surprise? I mean, look at, I, Layman is taking these three franchises, right? But these yeah. three franchises are defined in ways that I think are even more restrictive than the superhero genre. Like, think about it. The Predator's whole gist, the whole thing with the Predator, is that they stalk their enemies, they can go invisible, they hunt their enemies, they kill their enemies, they take trophies, and then occasionally Arnold Schwarzenegger will show up and be like, Do it! Do it! Shoot me! And then, like, outsmart him, right? That's the Predator. Alien, same basic principle. You have this creature running around that's trying to eat you, and then you outsmart it, and you flush it out the airlock, or whatever, you kill the queen, and then that's the end of it. Both, both of these franchises never had the creatures themselves as the center of attention, right? Like, as the protagonists of their own stories. Even when it turned into, like, the horrible, horrible Predator versus Alien films, right? Oh. But that's it, isn't it? It's like, even in those scenarios, those creatures... And we saw this also with Predator versus Archie, right? Or Predator versus Aliens versus Superman, or Predator versus Aliens versus Terminator, all of that. Or, or technically, the first, you know, in the mid nineties, they had Judge Dredd versus Predator, and they had Judge Dredd versus Aliens. Sure, or By the I... actual British people behind two thousand AD. Now, I would, I would say that I think the big mistake here is taking Dredd out of Mega CD One for the Cursed Earth, because one of the big draws of the idea of Judge Dredd is that you know the guy within the city. Well, you and have to assume you, and that once you, And once you take Dredd out into the Cursed Earth, he loses the point of being a vicious lawman and becomes more of an heroic archetype. It's one of my big problems that I always had with the, you know, the big epic, the Cursed Earth that Pat Mills did. Everybody seems to like And I'm like, but once you take him out of it, once it becomes a quest arc, he's just, you know, another cowboy. Yeah, he's not a but, vicious cop. But at the same time, like two points. First of all, the whole thing with the Cursed Earth is that at the end of the day, he goes back. Like, the Cursed Earth is good for a vacation. You don't want to stay there. Mm -hmm. So he does eventually return. Secondly, like, listen, we both know John Layman's a smart man. There is no way in hell that this series is going to go four issues without throwing Predators and Aliens into Mega City 1. It's really just a matter of time. And, okay, I'm kind of frustrated with Layman because Chew is my favorite series over the last five years or so. Really? But... Yeah. Well, 
<laughs> overall, overall, oh my you God. know, long term series. Overall, Chu is one of my favorites of all time. I did not know that. But he never seems to be able to bring what makes Chu so unique into anything else he wrote because he did a Batman run which was okay. She did a Godzilla miniseries which was okay. She did the Mars attacks for IDW which was okay. But that's it. Nothing rises to that level. Do you notice that all else, these things have something in common? Yeah, and wait, and if nothing else, Chu is a darkly humorous book, so you would think perfect for Judge Dredd, right? Chu is literally a series about lawmen with infinite bars because in their world, you know, the FDA is the most powerful agency on Earth. Sure. You would think he would be able to do something with it, but instead he's just... But look at who you're talking about. It's okay, and okay is one of the worst things I can say about a book. Yeah, but Tom, like, look at... I mean, not to belabor the point, but look at who you're talking about here, right? You're talking about John Lehman and his dark humor and all that, but you're also talking about Judge Dredd. And Judge Dredd, as you very well know, is not necessarily a series that has ever benefited from excessive character development or, you know, quirks or more subtlety. Like, Chu has, for well, all the, for I, all I the Chu can be outrageous. It, I think one of the major issues with Red is that this is a character in the last 10 to 15 years has become very continuity dependent. Once you take him out of the whole John Wagner established the slow process of him burning yeah. out of the system he created. But that's yeah. true for every, I mean, that's true for any adaptation, right? Like, take mm-hmm. Batman out of whatever Snyder's been doing with him, and it'll just revert to the iconic Batman, right? Mm-hmm. Like, if this were a Batman versus Alien crossover, it would be Bruce Wayne, Batman, etc., right? That, that's now, usually how it I, now, For the nice point, Chris Mooneyham. That's some nice art there. This yeah. guy knows how he knows how to do dread. He knows, you know, the iconic shot of the predator over the over the fifth page. And I really like the, his anime design. You know, it's it, you know, it's not unique, but it's very cool looking. Yeah. He did five ghosts, right? I think he did. With, yeah, uh, and, and, and it's not like and it's not like Five Ghosts. This is a lot less atmospheric, a lot more straightforward-ish. Mm-hmm. And you know, the shot of Dread riding into the Cursed Earth—that's a classic Dread shot. You know, this is as good as anything you can find in 2000 AD. Yeah, the so question it's, is—it's a very fine art. Yeah, but the question is, like, does this book offer anything that you couldn't get in 2000 AD, or that wouldn't be done better in 2000 AD? Like, because no, I'm because I'm reading this and it's like, okay, so it's Dread and Anderson and the Predator. And the xenomorphs are going to show up eventually, right? Like, yeah. the, this doctor is not the, the main bad guy. He's not the threat that we have to deal with. Yeah, and the one the one thing that I like here is the joke with the robot messiah, with, which is design. And, yeah, the emotions. You know, the way he appears on the page. Sure. That's funny, but that's the one, that's the only thing that made, actually made me laugh. He's an afterthought. Like, I wasn't yeah. even sure, is this, like, a part of another story that... It, oh, it, I, I like the fact that, you know, the stories. His story is unconnected to the main plot point. Yeah. Dread just stump will just stumble into the predators. I mean, I, I guess like my my problem here is just I don't know whether it would have even been possible, even for someone like Layman, to come up with anything here that would have been more than workman like. Like when we were doing Predator versus Archie. You, the the only reason that you would have to read that miniseries would be if you had like this yen against Archie and you really wanted to see him die violently. That would, I guess, be one way to do it. But I don't know if anyone would read that and be like, "I'm a huge fan of the Predator. Let me see him carve up a bunch of people from Riverdale." It's like, uh, I don't know. 
Like I think I think the Archie books proved that they can do this dark take on them with Afterlife with Archie, which was an interesting take on it. And uh, we, one of the first trades we reviewed the American Judge Dredd, right, Mega City Two by Douglas Wolf, yeah. which you didn't like. I loved it, and I think at least it had confidence and it wasn't. Say what you will about it. It wasn't just a retread. It wasn't just no. boring. It no, tried no, no. to do something else. Yes, and, and but but that's what I'm getting at. Like it, it was possible for Woke to do that. Because he didn't need to find like an intersection between three franchises, mm. each of which is defined to a very large extent today by their incredibly static nature. Like, it, think about it. The evolution of the Predator franchise, right, is what exactly? Adrian Brody beat one. At that point, you're kind of like, okay, he can go sit with Freddy Krueger in the retired villain section. You're done. If Adrian Brody can beat you, it's time to go. Aliens, the last time that anyone saw anything to do with that that made any kind of sense at all was Alien Resurrection, and not everyone was crazy about that film either, right? But at least you still had Sigourney Weaver, you had Ron Perlman, you had Benona Ryder doing okay work. So, but like, these are not friends. And even Judge Dredd, you know, for all the Dredd, Andrew Wagner is still developing and growing and getting older and, and is involved in all this continuity. When you take him out of his series and transplant him somewhere else into anything else and, and expect him to cross, like if this had been a Dread versus Batman crossover, if this had been Dread crossing over with any other franchise, it would have reverted to type. Right? So mm, at that's that, a good point. Yeah. So it's like, you, there's no, none of the franchises that are involved in this three-way crossover have experienced any kind of independent growth or evolution that could contribute to this story directly. It's always going to be, you know, you know, an alien queen is going to show up. Somebody who is not Dredd or Anderson is going to get hit with the face hugger, right? That's inevitable. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There, there's definitely Judge Expendable 1 through 5 there yeah. in the background. So, and again, like, if this were a situation where there was evidence right from the start, like, let's say you start the, tri- you start the story, right? The Predator kills Judge Dredd in the first two pages. Hmm. At least then you're like, you know what? That's something that you couldn't have anticipated. But Dredd is not... Expendable or, or if in that the way. entire judge crew was with you know named judges, if you had Anderson and Beanie and Giant in the background, yeah. then you would, oh I actually care about or you know, if um, or or if, if like there, there you, are you see the predators there. and then you find out that the predators are judges, like some kind of twist in that sense. You know what I mean? <laughs> judge predator, judge predator, whatever. You know, I, I like. And, and I think this is part of the reason why Layman's performance here is disappointing, right? Because given that kind of carte blanche, I think he might have been able to come up with a scenario that would at the very least be interesting in its own right. But you're dealing here with three licenses that even on their own haven't had any kind of real growth outside of their... Like, you know, you're talking about Dread, like Wagner's Dread in 2000 AD right now. But yeah. whatever is happening there doesn't. I, sh- I should I should say I should probably say Michael Carroll because he's been writing for the last six months. Ah, okay. doing great work, by the way. I'm I sure. really like Carroll. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm sure that like 2000 AD itself has all the space and all the freedom in the world to develop dread in different ways, and this has been going on since the 80s. Like even something like Apocalypse War was significant for dread at the time. 
But when you take dread out and you put him in a different context, right? Like in a crossover with, and again, like in this case, it's Predator and Aliens, but it could have been any franchise, right? Anywhere where dread would have had to intersect with another licensed character. It would have been like just, I am the law, and, the end. Yeah, unless you actually put it in continuity, which I think, I think the late 90s, early 2000s, Ali- Judge Dredd Aliens with John Wagner was actually considered in continuity. Okay. They can't, ref- they can't refer to them in name, but they do mention from time to time the infestation, so. Yeah, but even and in that wa- situation. And it was by Wagner, so you know. Okay, he- but let but me. Whatever, I, yeah, am I, am I gonna, like, am I breaking convention here to assume, having never read this, that the judges win. <laughs> yeah. Like, am I? Is that a stretch? Not so much. Did they? Was there an alien queen involved? Yep. Did somebody get face hugged? Yep. Okay. So, like, you know, there's no. The the story beats tend to repeat themselves, and yeah. then it's you know, if it had been aliens versus Archie instead of Predator versus Archie, somebody would have gotten face hugged. There would have been a giant alien queen at the end. So what you're saying is, we need the Judge Dread versus Archie. I'm pretty sure that after the Punisher, he can handle Dread just as well. It's, it's a fun idea to think that outside of Riverdale, it's the Cursed Earth and Mega City One, <laughs> and, it's, and, and Riverdale is like it's the suburbs of Mega City One. Yeah. It's the nice parts where everybody went to, and everyone's having fun, and you know, like you know. yeah, like and two miles out of town, Dread is you know just executing people left and sure. right. Sure, sure, he's probably related to Reggie on some level, right? Riverdale is a, is a mega block. <laughs> sure, why not? <laughs> But like, cause that, like, but that's the sort of thing that never happens in these kinds of stories, and it's the thing that I that I think it also brings talented writers down, right? Like, had there been a like this scenario of Riverdale is a block in Mega City One, give that to John Layman and he'll go crazy. But in the scenario where it's just like the gang goes to a, I don't know, to a like a, a beach and there's a predator there, okay. We saw that with Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know. That's... Oh, Judge Jughead. <laughs> Chip yes. Zadarsky should, should do it. Yeah, we need to get him like on the phone and be like, Chip, Judge Jughead. He's not going to have any idea what we're talking about. But just remember those words, Judge Jughead. But Okay, uh, yeah. shall we move on to the next review? Sure. Oh, wait, before uh, we do, are you sticking around for Predator Dread Aliens number two through four? I don't. Maybe I'll read it when the arc is complete. But just because right now I'm in a dread completion mode. Okay. But you know, and it's not bad. The art's lovely, but that's it, really. Which is, I guess, the best you could hope for. Uh, Kill or be killed. It's the new Ed Brubaker, Sean Phillips series with Elizabeth Brightweiser on colors. Yep. The dream team is back. Yeah, the dream team is back. And Sean, tell him about the plot. Okay, so Dylan is a 28-year-old college student who is depressed for some reason. I'll get back to that in a bit. Uh, Attempts to commit suicide and survives. Is then confronted by... Something. Well, okay. Um, uh, In a more general sense, I will say that there is a surprise supernatural twist that informs what happens afterwards, which is mm-hmm. that he becomes a vigilante. His yeah. mission is that he is required <laughs> to kill, quote-unquote, bad people. Yeah. And he has to kill one person every 30 days, or he will die. 
Or so he thinks, at least. Well, like, that's the premise as it's suggested to him. Mm. Uh, Because here's the thing. The reveal that you've mentioned is, for me, was such a whoa moment. Because uh, for the first 14 issues, it's a a death wish. You know, it's modern-day death wish. Yeah. And then you have this moment, the supernatural incursion. I'm like, okay, I didn't see it coming. And the first few pages... Brubaker and Phillips are playing with your mind. Is it real? Is it not? And there they're going, oh, no, 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 no. Satan's there, buddy. Well, Satan's there. Or is he? Yeah, like, it, or it, is he it's not? ambiguous enough even at the point of, like, resolution mm-hmm. where it could go either way. It's real enough for Dylan, which is, I think, the main point. Yeah, Dylan believes it. At the end. Like, that's his thing. Whether or not any of it's actually true is a different story. Or it's just a justification in his mind for what he's doing, Yeah, right? that could also be true. Like, he suffers, like, these physical ailments, but he could have had them beforehand, too. So, again, this is a modern-day take on the idea of Death Wish or Dirty Heart. Yeah, you which know, he the... says... I mean, th- there's a... Um, I think it's Devin... Uh, who is it at the very end of the issue? Who has, like, the usual... Um, you know, mm-hmm. Ed Brubaker Ru- comics that Image tend to have, like, this little postscript article. The back matter, yeah. So, who was the back matter person this time? I'm pretty sure it was Devin... Devin Farachi. Devin Farachi okay. from uh, Birth Movies Dead. Yeah. So, Devin Farachi has this whole, like, explicit comparison to Death Wish. Okay. And I think it's interesting because the point of, of movies or stories like Death Wish or Dirty Harry is that the main character is always, you know, personally... Appealed by what's going on around him. Yeah. And Dylan specifically is not like that. Dylan doesn't, doesn't care. He's not like, I want to do justice and keep the streets safe. Mm. What he's saying is, I have to. Well. I, I, I have to. Th- that, I literally, I don't, I don't want to most of the time. I just, I need to physically. Now, see, this was a point of contention that I had and I don't know. I had like some mixed feelings here and I don't know if that's just a sign of me getting older and not really understanding what Brubaker is aiming for at the moment. But, like, my problem... Dylan. The guts. He's aiming for the guts. Dylan is this 28-year-old with ennui who gets depressed over being depressed over being depressed. Like, you don't get a sense in the story that there's anything actually wrong with his life that he's suicidal, right? Or that he's suffering from some kind of psychological issue, like he's bipolar or manic-depressive, or, like, that there's something that would lead him... He decides to kill himself because he's in love with his best friend... And she's been making out with him because she f- apparently feels sorry for him. And it's just yeah. like, poor me, poor me, poor me. Self-pity, self-pity, self-pity. He, if he were 18, I would buy that. He's 28. I, I'm, you know, I've never tried to kill myself. But I'm sadly familiar with that, you know, train of, oh, I'm just feeling bad over something. And then because you have no legitimate reason to feeling bad in your own mind, you start feeling bad about the fact that you're feeling bad. Yeah. I, I know this cycle of depression is too much, right? I am I'm not dep- I'm not clinically depressed, but this cycle of darkness that yeah. enters your own brain, and I think Brubaker and Phillips just buy into that beautifully. The, you have that scene in page fifteen, yeah, where we see uh, his again his his roommate uh, and his best friend kissing in the in the foreground, you know, and they're in light, and you have Dylan just sitting there watching TV and the blackness around him, and it's just. Such a great moment of, yeah, I'm feeling like I'm disconnected. It is. I have nothing to connect me to the real life, so why not just throw myself? 
I see again, like th- that was a scenario that just didn't convince me because it's like mm. it's it's not even that he's in love with her is the thing, right? Like they're making out, but it's not that he's like head over heels the way that like um, some of Rubaker's other protagonists can be. Like in Criminal, for example, this happens a lot, right? Like the guy just falls head over heels over this woman, and he'll do anything for her, even though he knows it's a bad idea, right? That's yeah, it's more of a sense of I really want to have something, and I can't believe someone else is having her. For him, uh, the, yeah. the 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 girlfriend is more like you know an ideal status symbol. Of, At oh, I have a girlfriend. Though, I matter. At twenty mm-hmm. eight, it just seems so juvenile. Like I don't. No, no, no. I if had anything, a problem think, like sympathizing. If anything, with I think I if I disagree. I think with if 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 he were a kid, if he was eighteen, I would say he would. It would be a crush. But when you're older, it's more like, you know, I need the sense of connection. And I don't know. You're a happier person. You're a more balanced <laughs> person than me. So I don't yeah. think you know. I don't think you know that sense of just what what what's going on with my life. No, there's you just. But hang on, hang on. There's a difference between saying right that's if someone is stuck in a cycle of depression, then obviously, like if they're not seeking help, it becomes. A spiral, right? That is perfectly understandable. And when you apply it to a fictional framework, it's all well and good, right? That's understandable. My problem here was that I needed some... Again, like, it's the difference between what people in real life experience, right, in terms of depression, in terms of mental illness, versus when it's dramatized, right? When it's fiction, you have to assume some kind of causality, Right. And there doesn't seem to be anything wrong in his life. She's not even the only girl that he's ever been interested in. Right. Because before that, we get a flashback that you don't, I, he was I, dating you this girl. You don't need anything to be wrong. That's that's the whole point of it. Right. That that's not the point you, of the story, though. No, no, no. That your mind makes things go wrong. And I, I and I think it's beautifully connected with the idea that, you know, he's not he's not some ideal vigilante. He's not the guy who's doing it to protect people on the street because he is, you know, a bit of a selfish dick. And he's a bit of a selfish dick because he made a prison in his own mind. And and he, that's why he's going out and killing people because he thinks he has to. Not because he thinks he needs to. Not because he thinks he's doing something good. No, he absolutely why, why does believes he want that he has to. Be to be with that girl? Not because, you know, he loves her. Just because he thinks I should be with someone, I guess. If but I'm not th- with someone, something's wrong with me. But that's not the thing that causes a suicide attempt. The thing that causes a suicide attempt is him overhearing that she pities him. But if the yeah. only thing he's interested in is hooking up with her, then it doesn't, you know, like there's... <sighs> It reads to me like the sort of self-indulgent melodrama, you know, like emo stuff that would be acceptable for someone who was in a younger state of mind, right? Someone who is not like almost hitting 30. And well, then, he, and he even before that he never, he didn't, he didn't went through the yeah, proper moves, but, right? That he started university too late. But even that he feels that, like an old man stuck in a young man's world. But even before that, right? Even before any of that happens, the flashback that we see him with, where he's sitting with his girlfriend on the bus, and someone is like shouting abuse, and he turns around and he wishes that he would get up and beat that guy. So the hero like, and the bitch yeah, moment. Yeah. So it's like so. You're really complaining about the fact that you did not get to play out one of the most tired self-indulgent scenarios, right? That, like, you would defend your lady's honor by beating up this random guy. 
Like that's what you're, that is the thing that gets you so frustrated that you are willing to kill you, that your life is crap and you're willing to kill yourself. I don't know. I just, it might just be because in all of Brubaker's other work so far, including the stuff that he's done with Sean Phillips, I always feel like these characters have clearer and understandable reasons for being the way they are. Like Teague Lawless, for example. This is someone whose life makes it very clear why he is the way he is. And he, they're very they're very task focused. They're yeah. very purposeful. No, but also like there's there's an understandable motivation for what they do that isn't just about you know feeling sorry for yourself. Like that's mm-hmm. not enough for me to feel sympath if something had happened to Dylan or like if something in his backstory had led to him becoming like this, like some kind of tragic or whatever. That in itself is cliche, but at least I feel like that would be a good start towards Uh, sympathizing I prefer it not to be known at this point, and I really love the way they shape the character in the world and the art. You know, I'm not the biggest Sean Phillips fan in the world, but there are some scenes in this issue just, you know, my mind boggles. Uh, Page Mm. uh, 17, where you have this long horizontal panel... And the white on the side where he's just thinking, should he kill himself, should he not? And you have this shot of the city in the snow. It's beautiful, right? Yeah. And I just just love the way he creates the mood of it. The idea that this guy is literally standing foot away from the light point, feeling the air. Yeah, absolutely. This is something that I think you can really see the the long-running partnership between Brubaker and Phillips coming to the fore in panels like these. Where and Brightweiser like, doing great color work. You know, the, the supernatural incursion scene is oh yeah. about color, right? Yeah. Or the absence of it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I'll, I'll say this much. Like, I I am sticking around because I know Brubaker, right? Like, this is someone I know who, even if they don't get me on the first try, it's worth sticking around at least for the first arc because I, I can see how maybe there might be more to it. I just find Dylan repulsive. And, well, not, no, <laughs> repulsive is too strong. Repulsive is too strong. Um, I, and again, like, this this might just be me being grumpy old man. I don't know. But it's like, I'm tired of... Grumpy old chum. No, because, like, I'm tired of the default male protagonist who blows everything out of proportion for the sake of emo melodrama. Like, that is who, the thing... Who was it? Abe Coelsha? Abe Coelsha. Who who said that he's tired of weak boys? Well, I that everybody that everybody in comic books seems to be a weak boy. See, I disagree <laughs> with him there. It's mm. I'm looking for like, in my opinion, like the ideal would be somewhere in the middle. You can have these male characters who are weak, right? You have had male characters who are weak. We've been reviewing books where characters are shown to be flawed, who they don't have the best judgment, they make mistakes, whether it's their background that causes them to do it, or whether they're just entitled jackholes and they do it just because, right? It doesn't matter. Any any of those reasons are good enough. But you can also have the sort of self-confident, successful guy who gets in over his head. That's fine, too. The things specifically that I'm tired of are the people who, at first glance, right, like based on how the issue presents them, are basically just being self-indulgent. Like the self-pity is completely out of proportion here. 
What is yeah, wrong I, with I, his life? Like, what is I, wrong with I him? only have a problem with that and I think if I think the book is with them. If I think that the book is saying, well, feel sorry for them. And I don't think the book is doing this here. I think this book is not critical, but keeps enough distance from Dylan's own moping that I accept it. But there's and so much of it, Tom. There is I, so much of the moping. I don't have a problem with it. You know, people mope. I mope all the time. Yes. You just don't hear me. But when the moping becomes... Like the motivation for everything the character does, it's it's a bit much, I think. Well, that and murdering people. Like, what was the name? I, I, I really like this first issue. I think, you know, it's not as good as, say, the last two criminal one-shots, which they did this yeah, year. Yeah, but you don't even excellent. have to go to criminal. It's like, if you want an example of this type of protagonist done right, you remember Incognito? Mm, I actually like Incognito a lot less than this. I, I all, uh, whenever, they, whenever they do superheroes together, it always feels like... They just don't want to do superheroes. And, right. you know, uh, Incognito was a mar- icon book, but, you know, somebody's told him, you know, give people some superpowers. And I always feel like Phillips and Buberg are like, no, 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 nobody needs powers. And yet, like, and that's yet. that character, mm-hmm. everything about him is, you know, self pity and feeling sorry for himself or whatever, but at least he has a reason. You know, like when you get into his backstory and you find out about like, you know, his brother and he had this relationship of Eva destruction or whatever her name was. <laughs> and, you know, like they oh, may not be great name. Yeah, Brubaker may not be enthusiastic about superpowers, but if he has to do it, then goddamn, he knows how to do it properly. Right. Like he knows well, how to. Well, Brubaker knows how to do stuff properly. You know, and it, when was the last time you've read a bad Brubaker book? This one. Like, <laughs> bad? No, not bad. Actually, okay. actually bad. No, not bad. Not bad. But like, See. this is substantially weaker than Velvet. It's substantially weaker than uh, Fatal. It's fantastic. It's much weaker than Criminal. And again, like, I'm willing to stipulate that the Criminal specials benefited from using established characters, right? Like, t- the, the Lawless Brothers and the Dad, yeah. they have been around since practically the beginning of the series. So to do a one shot about like Teague Lawless and and everything that happened with this girl, it's like okay, yeah, but we know who this guy is, so we're willing to cut him some slack. I I think I I really like it. I think it's a really strong dot issue, and we should mention four dollars forty eight pages. Yep, yep. Well, it is an image book after all. Yeah, yeah. And I I'm sticking with it. I am too, despite not being bowled over by this issue. Like I'll I'll admit that I need something f- more from Dylan. Shall we move on to our patented trade review? Let's. Uh, Sean, you chose that one, I so did. you will introduce so it. So we will be discussing Volume 1 of Four Eyes. This is Forged yeah. in Flames. It is the first Forged miniseries by Joe Kelly and Max Tiamara. Uh First launch in 2008. Ooh. That's a latecomer if there is one. Yep, Image Comics. Mm-hmm. And this is actually something that I went into blind because the last time Joe Kelly dabbled in fantasy adjacent stuff, we got I Kill Giants, which I thought was tremendous. Oh, oh yeah. And the thought of him doing more of that, I'm like, mm-hmm, sign me up. So the plot of the story is centered around a young boy named Enrico who's growing up in Depression era New York. I think it's New York? Yeah. It's either yeah. New York or Chicago. It's very difficult for me to tell, actually. It's New New York. New York. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. And uh, his father seems to be involved with the Italian mob. There's some kind of mystery going on over there. And they go to the beach, and Enrico's father is killed. 
protecting him from what very much seems to be a dragon. An yeah. actual, honest-to-God medieval dragon. Uh, fast forward a couple of years, Enrico's not sure what he saw, etc. And then he finds out that there is this whole underground dragon-fighting ring. Well, uh, I think my assumption is that in this world, dragons are... Well, not common, but a known fact, and just I, you know, I don't and that, know, and, and that his father was just you know working. It's they're not supposed to be part in a you know they're not supposed to catch them and train them to fight. Tom, I just, this was like the thing that I did not understand the entire book because you're I, right. I assume that the plot is it's the depression with dragons. It seems that way, doesn't it? Because like. Obviously, all of these people underground are aware of the dragons, and then at the very end of the book, there's like a newspaper clipping that talks about dragons. But then when Enrico tells his mother that, like, yeah. you know, my dad was killed by a dragon, and she's like, "There's no such thing as dragons," and I'm like, "Are you serious? Yeah. If dragons existed in Depression Age America, everyone would know. Food lines. Everybody would know. Like I." I there's a very strange contradiction here that Kelly doesn't really manage to resolve, which is that on the one hand, dragons are clearly well known enough that there's like a whole underground operation for them, right? Like you have trainers, you, you have a secret economy based on capturing, yeah. uh, making them fight, and you know using bones, stealing and, uh... eggs. There's a whole system in the middle. Like um, Enrico is desperate for money, so he signs up with a group of people who have a system, Tom. An actual system with, like, designated roles and everything for stealing dragon eggs from a nest. It reminded me a lot of that part in uh, Pacific Rim where we see, uh, what was his name, uh, the Ron Perlman character, something Chu? Oh, uh, Hannibal Chow. Hannibal Chow's operation where, you know, once a big monster falls down, they just, you know, wreck raid on it and take whatever part sure. of the body they can to sell and rework. And I really like that scene. And I like this idea in theory, but this book does not work. Well, part of the problem, I think, is that, first of all, you're absolutely right. Like, this does not click. And I think, it, similar to Suicide Squad, there seem to be two competing narratives here, and neither of them are working out very... Three, three actually, now that I think about it, three competing narratives. On the one hand, you have Enrico, right? Who is this kid who is absolutely certain that a supernatural creature killed his father, and he can't prove it. And he's carrying this around and trying to figure it out, etc., etc. He can't prove it to his mother, but everybody else is like, yeah, your father was killed by a well, dragon. Well, no. Over it. The, the people who agree with him are the people who are involved with a dragon trade. And, like, that's the thing. Like, I don't know if he went to, like, his mother's suitor and said, a dragon killed my father. What would he say? No such thing? Or, like, I don't know. The only people who acknowledge what Enrico's saying are the ones who are running the dragon operation. My big problem was something completely different. My big problem is that this is a four-issue arc. Mm. It should have been the first issue. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, literally, they spend the first four issues bringing us to the premise of a bit of a spoiler here. We're going to have a boy in his dragon story, which... It's I how you train your dragon. Obvious. That's the I other... thought this should have been the end of the first issue. That's the... that Well, that's... See, that's it. That's the other competing narrative, isn't it? It's how to train your dragon. <laughs> That's what it is. That. And it came before, right? This one, it started in this, 2008. Yeah. So when, when was How to Train Your Dragon, the first one? Well, no, I, I, I think the film came out in 11, but it was well, based yeah, on the yeah, book. No, 
the books weren't, you know, super popular. So it wasn't, it probably wasn't a ripoff. But really, this is just, he, I he don't should know. have been there. Joe Kelly should have been there earlier, right? I, I have no idea. Like, the first film, The How to Train Your Dragon, the film came out in 2010. Right, the uh, British okay. the the British book series that was coming out, as far as I know, was at least like oh, two thousand three. Yeah, four. but the books uh, I've I've actually seen some of the books. They're skew they skew you younger. You know, they're liter- they're not old ages. They're children. Books. Right. No, I'm not. I'm not suggesting that Kelly like ripped them off or anything. I'm just no. saying like so. That's like the other competing narrative here, right? It's depression era, um, depression era in New York. And you have Enrico trying to convince people that a dragon killed his father. And you have How to Train Your Dragon and, like, How to Train Your Dragon to a T, right? Because in the film you have um, Toothless, right? Mm-hmm. Who's, like, this dragon who's been injured and he's a runt or whatever. Same exact thing with Four Eyes, right? Where he's, like, the runt of the litter. If and we it, actually seen Four Eyes for more than five minutes. Right, but it, it's very clear. Like, other characters make it very clear that, no, no he's the runt of the litter. He should have died. He's blind. He can't fight. And then Enrico, of course, figures out that they're bonding. And there is an admittedly cute, like, page that Fumara draws of them, like, uh, like curled up in each other's arms. Which is cute, yeah. but it's also like, God, have we not seen this 50 times already? Like, Really? Why Why four issues for this point? I don't know. And, and like, the, the insane thing is that all of this doesn't seem to have be, like, what the story is actually about. Because once you get past, the, like, the death of his father, uh, trying to get money, stealing the eggs, meeting Four Eyes, training Four Eyes, bonding with Four Eyes, and finally getting Four Eyes, like, into the fight ring, that seems to be just, like, the beginning of the plot. Yes. And I'm like, wait a minute, what have we been doing all this time? You spent all this time on setup? For yeah, what? establishing a bunch of characters, nobody, uh, you know, the, the big, the big gangster who acts nice, but he's, you know, obviously of an of course. A gangster. Or the nice trainer. Who is, of course, like, the nice trainer is a black man in Depression era America, so of course. He's he, almost a magical black man. Almost. Not quite, but almost. He, he's like the mentor figure who mm-hmm. is, like, being, He's the underdog in the same way that Enrico is like this helpless Depression era immigrant kid, right? And in the same way that Four Eyes is like the runt of the litter and would have been killed. It's like all the underdogs rising up. Yeah, it's uh, it's obvious. Yeah, it really is. From the guy who made I Kill Giants, you know, a book of such emotional depth and and you know maturity to do this, and it's just I don't wow, get it. The, the, the difference in levels is just astounding. It is. And, you, like, I couldn't help compare it to I Kill Giants, right? Because, for oh, example, yeah. Enrico mourning his father does manage to, like, pull on the heartstrings a little bit. But it doesn't come close to everything that, like, Barbara goes through in our I Kill Giants. Where, like, she she imagines her mother's deathbed as, like, this dark... Right, like the, this this shadow space that she can't get into, so she goes and fights giants instead. Right, there's none of that here. I did not, and part of the problem is is the the whole notion of like you spend the entire book trying to figure out whether people in this world know that dragons exist or don't know that dragons. Yeah, exist. I, I've just read the first uh, the first scene with the mother as a miswrite. I, I so but I she keeps it up the, the entire book. 
He talks. He keeps trying to convince her over and over again that like her father, that you know, the father was killed by like a blast of fire from a dragon, and she has no idea what he's talking about. This should have been cut and cut. The script for this should have been rearranged, rewritten. Yeah. This four issue mini should have been issue one of a series, and since the timing of this is so sporadic, you know, why would I read this? Why would I read the four issue? This was presented as a four-issue mini, remember? And then a four-issue continuation. Why would I read this and be like, well, I can wait, I guess, for three more years till the next one comes up? Well, hang on. As far as I know, when this first uh, four miniseries were solicited, to the best of my knowledge, even then they had said that it would be a series of miniseries. Like, it was known that this would not be self-contained. Yeah, but because... But because this is so slow, if you're doing something so slow, you need to publish the issues quickly. Well, because the story, it's, the story itself is slow moving, so you can't allow me to wait, you know, six months between arc. Some, again, compare something like uh, Chu or Saga, mm-hmm. which are a very quick... These are quick series, right? They're always advancing, always moving forward in plot and character terms. Yeah. Now, if you if you take a six month break out of Saga, which I do because I read it in story arcs, right? Okay. You're okay because you don't feel slowness. If anything, you kind of need a break because Brian K. Vaughn writes, you know, quick. Yeah. And you sort of need to take some air before you dive in back to his world. Here, it's not like that. Here, you're like, I have too much air. You know, take some air away. Uh, you 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 can't you can't publish this. You can't write in a slow pace and publish in a slower pace. Not really. I mean, I'll, I'll say this much. I did go and read the second arc. The second arc, uh, Hearts of Fire, started coming out in January of this year. Oh. So we're talking a six-year gap yeah. between two I... four-issue miniseries, and the second one doesn't make much progress either. Mm-hmm. In terms of the overall plot, it's still and, and if and if this was great, maybe you know I I can wait five more years to the next Orkstein because the first arc of Orkstein was perfect. Give up, Tom. Mm-hmm. Give up on Orkstein. It's not coming. I'm, I'm saying I'm saying if you make me wait, you better be the best, right? Uh, Ellen Moore could have made you wait years between issues of From Hell because it was sure. From Hell. This is not that. No, the, no. this would have needed to be. Closer to the level of things that Kelly has done in the past in order for you to get invested enough that you'll say, you know what, the the waiting is literally the only thing that's bad about this book. And if you can read it when it's complete, it'll hold up. This miniseries was collected, right? So whenever it came out at Image, it's, it exists as a trade paperback. You'd read it as a trade paperback and you don't get much of anything out of it. Like it ends on this sort of like open note of to be continued and it's like, okay, but... You spent yeah, four and, issues and Kelly's still setting doing up the quick stuff now. He's still writing Spider-Man Deadpool, right? Which yeah. I remember you really liked. I enjoyed and then I didn't. You know, I just sort of... Mm. Th- that was lost in the Marvel Purge, so to speak. But Yeah, um, but but it's it's not it's not a slow series. No. <laughs> if anything else. No, the first issue of Spider-Man Deadpool has him, like, fighting Dormammu and, and making jokes and, you know, like, things happen. Here, it was sort of... Uh. Like, I, I would have understood it if it had been a character study, right? Like, if the idea is to build up Enrico as this protagonist who is growing and evolving over time to the point, like, I don't know what the end game is here, but, like, to wherever he's going. But they don't do that. Like, Enrico pretty much doesn't... Ch- mm. And, in fact, this was something that really pissed me off, too. Like, 
he witnesses his father's murder at the hands of a dragon. The end point is him training his own dragon. At no point does he ever seem to resolve, like, his compunction. It's, it's actually kind of gross because there's a scene, I think, in the second or third part when he finds the underground uh, dragon fighting ring. He's excited to watch them die. Like, he enjoys seeing dragons suffer and tear each other apart. Yeah, yeah, he, which makes sense if for If you were a little a older, yeah. I'd say he gets off on it, which is gross in a whole different way. But, so you have that, and you have him training his own dragon. At no point do these dots seem to connect. Like, I, I did not see a point in the story where he sort of moves past that. It's just sort of like, yeah, I like watching dragons bleed and die, but oh, I feel sorry for this one. Okay, well, I don't... I don't know what I'm supposed to do with that. Yeah. Huge disappointment. I have to say like, um, Kelly's better than this. We know that he's better than this. We have the evidence Mm. that he's better than this, but, uh, Fiamora's art. There's some kind of charm to this long limb character design, but most of the time it's just, I I just don't see it. I like the dragons, you know, when they show up, they're like big and threatening and, you know, although sometimes the the fights get a little, abstract like i don't know whose head is this what's going on who's biting who here yeah it's it's not spectacular yeah it's like because if like part of the premise here is you know that there are these underground fight rings if you're gonna do a fight scene between dragons you have to have something a little more kinetic than what fumara brings to the table because it's just sort of like these static images of I'm not sure who's t- like, there's this tail flying around. It's like, who does that, be- which one of these dudes does it belong to? Who's winning this fight? Right? Like, I can't tell. Yeah. Kind of a letdown, uh, but you know, yeah, it, shame in, uh, in the images defense, this is not the first project of theirs that we've been disappointed in, but the, you know, like the strength of image is that if this project doesn't take off, we'll just wait for the next one. Hey, if you if you want an image straight to read, you know, open the back page of Killer Be Killed and look at the list of Brubaker Phillips well, projects. Well, no. if if you were looking specifically <laughs> for like the kind of urban fantasy that Four Eyes hmm. presents itself to be, you uh, could Rumble still f- is okay. Rumble, I guess, is fine and is yeah, running right now. Yeah, you could you could find them. Like they're out there, right? Uh, Black Magic. I Black didn't Ma- like the first issue very much. Neither but did I. It was better than this. Um. Yeah, it was. Although, it, well, no. See, Black Magic was better in the sense that Rucka at least clearly established, like, okay, there are these witches. People don't know about them. To yeah. the point, like, in the first issue, you remember, like, the whole plot point of the first issue is that, like, the guy calls her a witch and she has no idea how he finds out. Yeah. And that's, like, the big shock, right? Like, that's the thing. Here, it's like, so, dragons. Okay. I don't know. I, I, I guess dragons are a thing. From Africa, like there's a dragon from Africa, there's a dragon from the Japan, there's, huh, I don't know. Dragons are great, but you, they're sort of like giant robots in that we, the, the genre has progressed to a point where you can't just put them out front and be like, look, dragons. It's like, yeah, we know, we've, yeah. we've seen the movies, we bought the t-shirts, we have the statuettes, we've seen all of it. What else you got? So in answer to your question book, how to train your dragon, not like that. Well, don't beat it. I mean, Enrico really does like, just beats it with a flail. Ugh, ugh. 
Uh, so, shall we go to the finish? Yeah, um, you know, a letdown, but we'll uh, live. Yeah, so this was the smorgasbord. We're drawing ever closer to episode 50, yes. so, you know, big things coming. Yes. Good times ahead. And till next time, we want to remind you once again to visit Seekboard, Seekboard.org, the best comic book critic and review and review site. And if you want to find me, I am on the Twitter at Tom Shops. Until next time. Bon appetit.